I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Welcome to something to wrestle with. Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Something to Wrestle With. Bruce Pritchard, and man, are we excited for you. Today is your new Thanksgiving tradition. Earlier today, hopefully you checked out Starcade 87 with Tony Schiavone and I over at WHWMonday.com. And now it's time for your main event, Survivor Series 1987. We're going back 30 years today, Bruce. And uh, I guess before we do that, we should mention... That we had one heck of a time, or at least you did, in Houston this past weekend in our live show. I had a great time uh, in Houston. Uh, thanks to Josh Reddick of the Houston Astros for coming out and joining us. And uh, so sad, so sorry that uh, the Houston food didn't agree with you, Conrad. You got a little sick. I was looking at pictures today from the show, and man, you you toughed it out. Uh, food poisoning only the second time I've ever had it, but, uh, I guess, uh, if you eat as much food as I do, it's, uh, it's bound to happen. Uh, shout out to Brad Gallimore for showing up and, uh, helping us at the live show. And of course, all the great help we usually get from Dave Silva was there and uh, our good buddy, our friend of the show, Mr. Nicholas Wineland. He, uh, I'm butchering his last name. He's the guy who carries around my big head to all the shows. And I hear it made several appearances on WWE TV over the weekend. Well, that's always a good thing. Yeah, and, and Steve Wright for the great pictures he sent us as well. And uh, I thought, you know, when you do a show in your hometown, every everything that can possibly go wrong usually does go wrong. And that was the case with this show. But it, it ended up going on, on without a hitch, and uh, I was just so happy that it was finally over, quite frankly. But I thought it was a great crowd and a great show, and thank you, everybody, for coming out and joining us. And uh, what we're going to do today is something a little different, right, Bruce? Yes, sir, we are. We're going to watch the original Survivor Series and provide you some alternate commentary, answer some of the questions that you had on Facebook and on Twitter, and uh, I hope you enjoy it. It's been and it's been 30 years since I've watched this. So it's going to be a good time. I'm looking forward to covering it. Uh, it's the first time we've done something like this since Beyond the Mat. Obviously, that was a different deal, but we're going to be kicking an old school here today. And uh, before we do, we want to tell you we're going to be back to business as usual next Friday at noon. And of course, we drop this at a special Thanksgiving release time. But next Friday, things will be back to normal. That's December 1st. And coming your way is going to be Jake the Snake Roberts. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash something to wrestle. You'll be able to ask all your questions about Jake the Snake Roberts. And we're going to dig into his career at long form next week. What are we covering the week after? Well, we're going to go ahead and tell you about the poll right now. 
Now, to remind you, this is going to be for the episode that's going to air on December 8th. And we're doing something that we tried to test a few weeks ago, and we're going to bring it back now. It's an all-tag team poll, and this time we're kicking it sort of old school. Bruce, tell us what poll option number one is. Well, the first one is going to be the Rockers with Shawn Michaels and Marty Jannetty and examine the uh, WWF, WWE run that the Rockers had. And we're also going to go ahead and cover Marty Jannetty's entire run. So once the Rockers split up, we'll keep going, telling you everything that happened with Marty Jannetty through the end of his WWE run. What's poll option number two, Bruce? Going to be the Steiner brothers, uh, Rob and Scott Rex Steiner, and uh, you know them as the Steiners, but Rob Rex Steiner, without a doubt, one of my favorite people in the whole wide world. I knew him when he first broke into the wrestling business and came to Mid-South and worked for Bill Watts and worked with Sting and Eddie Gilbert during that time. But we're going to cover uh, the Steiners' time in the 80s and the 90s. In, well, no, not 80s, but the 90s in WWF land and take it from there. We're also going to include Scott Steiner's WWE run. So if you got a sneak peek into that last week with Survivor Series 2002 and want a little more Big Papa Pump, well, poll option number two is your hookup. Holler if you hear me. What's poll option number three, Bruce? The Hart Foundation, Jim the Anvil Neidhart and Brett the Hitman Hart with their manager, Jimmy Hart, and also will cover their, uh, well, uh, run with and without the mouth of the south jimmy hart and we'll cover jim neidhart's individual run as well in the wwf so of course after brett and jim split jim bounces around and has a few different partners we're going to cover everything that jim did including who and who? uh we'll go all things jim neidhart if the heart foundation win last but certainly not least what is poll option number four bruce Quite arguably the most popular tag team ever in the world of professional wrestling, the Legion of Doom, uh, Hawk and Animal, and their run all the way through the WWF, and we're even going to take it through the Heidenreich and Draws days and those versions of the Legion of Doom, should you choose them on the poll for us to cover. So there you go. There are your four topics. You can vote right now over at facebook.com forward slash something to wrestle. As a reminder, Jake, the snake Roberts is coming your way next week. So next Friday, December 1st, it's all about Jake, but the following week, December 8th, when you decide, do you want the rockers, the Steiner brothers, the heart foundation, or the Legion of doom go vote right now, facebook.com forward slash something to wrestle. And uh, hopefully while you're over there, you checked out the phenomenal commercial that Chris McDonald and Sean Mooney put together to promote our event today. Survivor Series 87. Is this the coolest piece of nostalgia we've put on uh, on Facebook so far? Well, big thanks goes out to Sean Mooney for coming out and doing this for us i thought that uh his part was excellent and i do thank you again sean for doing it if you haven't checked sean out prime time with sean moody over on the mlw radio network uh please do so it's great podcast and we wish sean nothing but the best but chris mcdonald outdid himself as well with putting this all together and uh, i've watched it a couple times (laughs) as soon as i got it i just kept going back watching it and chuckling thought it was a great job so check it out, facebook.com forward slash something to wrestle. And now it's time to fire up your WWE network. Bruce, are you ready on your end? I am ready on my end. So what I'm going to tell you guys to do right now is fire up the WWE network, pull up survivor series, 1987, press the mute button. And I'm going to give you a little bit of a countdown. I'm going to say three, two, one play. And when I say three, two, one play, 
you press play when I say play. Pretty easy, right? Here we go. Bruce, are you ready? I'm ready. Three, two, one, play. Here we are, Bruce, at the Richfield Coliseum, Richfield, Ohio. Uh, it feels like an odd place to run a show, and then I realize, oh, well, we're just outside of Cleveland, right? Well, yeah, and it, it's for the folks there in Cleveland, it's just a suburb of Cleveland, but it was a beautiful brand-new arena. And the gentleman that ran the arena used to run the Hartford Civic Center, and he was a good friend of Vince's and Ed Cohen's. And it was an opportunity to showcase a brand-new show where we had you know friendly folks uh, that ran the arena and able to present a hell of a hell of a card on Thanksgiving day. First time running Thanksgiving day for the WWF. Well, yeah. And we're going to talk about that a lot, but I guess we should mention here that at this point, uh, you guys are actually making a special point to introduce the announcers, which is one of the first times I remember seeing this happen. Of course, Jesse, the body Ventura and gorilla monsoon getting their own separate entrance. You guys were still feeling your way out in pay-per-views um, but Jesse, man, he gets a hero's welcome here. Oh, without a doubt. And other than, you know, think about it other than the wrestling classic and WrestleMania, this is now the, the third pay-per-view that the WWF had ever done. So yeah, we're, we're feeling our ways through it. It's not WrestleMania. We wanted to kind of have a different presentation and experimented in a lot of different ways here. What, um, what, uh, here's the new, uh, opening montage here. Uh, who would have been putting this stuff together at this point? So this like opening package here for survivor series. Do you remember? Yeah, that would, that would have been me <laughs> at this point. I'd be working with, uh, Kevin Dunn and, and Kerwin selfies and the guys there at uh, video one in Baltimore. And we put together the open for this. I did all of the commercials for the Survivor Series, the lightning strikes with Andre and Hulk coming face to face from WrestleMania. And I put all of those together in Houston with uh, the director and editor, Ed Worthington from Channel 39. So it was kind of a joint deal, but I oversaw all of it up until this point. Do you remember who originally came up with the idea behind survivor series was this a pat patterson or a vince mcmahon idea i think it was a culmination of both vince and pat trying to offer a completely different type of event something that people hadn't seen before and to showcase an awful lot of talent without having to have one-on-one matchups and, and you have to understand in the 80s especially at this time the the business was all about house shows and the business was all about what you were drawing night in and night out in the house shows. So you didn't want to give away those attractions that you were trying to get people to pay money for, uh, whether it be on television, sure as hell didn't ever want to do that. But on pay-per-view, the idea was to offer an alternative to what they were seeing, uh, in the house shows. And that's what we were promoting every week on TV. It feels like a lot of people sort of in hindsight, think of the Royal rumble as being the next big pay-per-view, maybe because it's so many people's favorite, but this is even before the first Royal rumble. So this is really the first sort of brainstorm creation behind Pat Patterson. Of course, he gets all the credit uh, for the Royal rumble format that everybody loves so much, but this sort of, uh, five teams of five strive to survive idea is uh, really innovative at the time. It sure is. And I remember going to the marketing people and promotions people and 
them coming up with the you know, teams of five strive to survive. Just kind of hokey when you think about it now, but it was different. And of course, I, I enjoy that we're trying to make this seem like here's the only ways to be eliminated. And of course, it's all the regular wrestling rules, but we're making it feel as if it's this new almost gauntlet uh, style. And um, this is one of my favorite bits. A lot of people who were watching this for the first time will have no recollection of who the announcer on staff here is. Who is this person? Craig Minervini uh, was his real name. He went by Craig DeGeorge, and Craig was from Long Island, New York. He did the sports on local cable there in Long Island, and I believe uh, Phil Harmon who was the president of Titan television at the time, uh, hired Craig and they were looking for a new young look and a commentator or an announcer that actually had hair and was a little bit younger than Gene Okerlund. Well, so here he is. And, uh, what's so fun about this is the backdrop and then the just chaos going on in front of the backdrop. These backdrops look hand painted. Who put these together? These were actually done. This, this was put together by the art department. These were huge set pieces that were done and obviously just done for each pay-per-view individually. So it was a, a really nice, huge – actually, this was a um, kind of like a wooden backdrop that was put together for these interview sets. But it was hand-painted by somebody, right? I'm sure, yeah, without doubt. It, we, we, got that, we got that from Sets R Us. Yeah. You know, when I see Harley race strutting to the ring here in this cape, does this not feel like the best case in this era of, if you can't beat them, join them? Well, it was, and Harley was the King, man, <laughs> you know, and the funny thing, Bobby Heenan always just used to refer to Harley as King, which I think kind of would go up Harley's ass sideways a little bit. Well, it's, uh, it's kind of a fun idea here because these guys are, are coming out almost as a team one after another. And uh, as a kid, I never understood dangerous Danny Davis. Chat me up. Well, dangerous Danny Davis was the original heel referee that he was actually a ring crew guy. Okay. And Danny was from, uh, Massachusetts somewhere. Very, very stereotypical, uh, Yankee as us Southerners would say. And Danny was a member of the ring crew, always wanted to be a wrestler. They made him a heel uh, referee and made the transition into him actually getting in the ring and wrestling because he had that much heat. He was able to make the transition. And of course, here is the real star of the team, which seems crazy considering Harley race is already in the ring, but honky tonk, man, it has white hot heat here. Does he not? The greatest intercontinental champion of all time, baby. Yes. Honky was red hot at this point in time. And honky was arguably one of the hottest heels in the entire business at this point in his career. And, uh, of course the main angle here is on Saturday night's main event. Not too far prior to this, we saw the honky tonk man smash a guitar over the head of the macho man, Randy Savage. And look at Brutus, the fucking barber beefcake in the background here. Do you think the cocaine's just set in or what's going on here? Well, Boy, there could have been, uh, that could have been a dusty conversation is all I'm going to say. But, um, look at that crew. And again, here's an, here's another one. You look at the who's who of the wrestling business. Oh, they're all and here. It, it, it's insane because you got, you got Harley working with Duggan, uh, beefcake, Jake, 
Steamboat in the Macho Man, uh-huh, freak out, freak out, yeah, uh-huh, with Miss Elizabeth, dig it, yeah. It's so iconic, this lineup. I mean, this is so 80s WWF with Hacksaw, Beefcake, Jake, Steamboat, Macho Man. I mean, this is an all-star lineup, and it's in the opening match. I hope Danny Davis is ready for what's coming his way. Well, and and I was just about ready to say, when you look at the the picture of the entire match for this, you kind of have to ask yourself, who doesn't belong? And you've, you've got guys like Ron Bass was the top top guy in the Carolinas and in Florida. Hercules was the top guy. Um, all of them. Every single one in the match is a main eventer. Except, and then there's Danny. Yeah, it, it's, it's which one of these is not like the other. Now, the dragon here, we should mention, had been really hot in the mid-Atlantic area, and now he's come in here, and he's going to be in featured spots and have some really, really big-time feuds with the Macho Man and um, – an angle with Saturday night main event with, uh, Jake, the snake, but it won't be too long. And he's back down South with Crockett. And we've covered that a little bit. How would you categorize this run of Ricky steamboat? Would you say it was a letdown for him? You guys, both sides? No, it wasn't the, the run itself wasn't a letdown and there was nothing about, you know, Ricky's performance or anything else as to why Ricky left. It was more of a situation involving his, his family life and and his personal situation that really is the reason that Ricky had to leave. So it wasn't, Oh, Hey, this was a disappointment in Ricky steamboat. It just was a disappointment in timing and how everything kind of worked out. Do you think based on the lay of the landscape here with macho man here and Hulk Hogan here, do you think there was ever an opportunity in this era for Ricky Steamboat to be one of those top tier performers, or was he always going to be just a rung below? Not based on ability, just based on the way the game was at the time. I don't know that Ricky ever had the personality that was going to wow Vince enough to make him the top guy, but he was always definitely going to be in the hunt for being being in top and being in that rung. Yeah, he would have been a top guy, but he never would have been the top guy just due to his promo skills or lack thereof. It's interesting because just a couple of hours ago, I was watching, um, Starcade with Tony Schiavone and we saw Earl Hebner and here we see Dave Hebner. And of course we're just a few weeks removed or a few months removed from the whole double referee thing. When do you remember you guys coming up with that idea? Was that sort of at the last minute? I have absolutely no idea when they did that. When they did the main event finish, I was at gorilla position. I did not even know the finish other than Andre was going to beat Hogan and give the title to DiBiase. So I I have no idea. The the idea obviously was done a long time ahead of it so that they could get Earl there and have everything in in motion. But I didn't know about it at at the time until it actually happened. One of the things I find interesting about this is just the way it's all shot. And of course, uh, I have the benefit of having just watched Starcade and the production here, just based on how high up the camera gets for the crowd shots is so much different than the way Jim Crockett knew how to present it at the time. Did Vince uh, or, or whoever was in charge of photography, look at this fucking asshole sort of challenge, uh, the crew to get as high and wide of a shot as possible for each of these events to make it look bigger and bigger. 
Well, you wanted to be able to spotlight the crowd and show the people and the lighting, obviously, I'm sure was a whole hell of a lot difference because we lit our crowd. We wanted people to see, and we learned that from Dick Ebersol and from the folks over at Saturday night's main event that you need you showed to the crowd show how full it is. And then it's a bigger yes. deal. Yes. And, and that and is the, make the audience a part of the show. It's much, it's a, it's a much improved presentation for sure. Because like the lights on the upper deck, man, you did not see that just a minute ago. On and, and look at the way the people are going crazy for Brutus, the fucking barber beefcake. Some bitch was over red hot. No doubt. Look, look at his head moving, man. The Coke had just kicked in. Hey, so, um, when he's got the side of it, when Brutus has the side of his pants cut out like this, um, is he wearing like a, is he got like a mankini on under there? Or if he has a tear, is it just twig and berries just wide for all to see? Well, you know, it's just kind of, oh, good God, man. It's got nice little, uh, tea back working there. So Brutus, the fucking barber beefcake wears thongs too. Uh, I think every single guy out there, probably with the exception of Jake is wearing one. Yeah. Harley race is wearing a thong. Uh, pretty close. Yeah. Okay. I didn't realize that that was with the case. lace with lace, not, but kingly lace. Listen, it's royal you. lace. It's Listen very nice. You. And where, perfumed. Where did the boys get their thongs? Thongs are us. Thank you. Well, men thongs are us. The, you, you get, you gotta be particular when you're talking about, uh, getting up there on the top rope, like Ricky steamboat and what kind of thong you're wearing. What makes a good men thong? Um, lace is sometimes, you know, lack thereof, but also the, the scent is important. Hey guys, are you looking for the perfect father's day gift idea? I was, and I found it at Paint Your Life. With Paint Your Life, you'll get a hand-painted portrait created to fit almost any budget, and it's a great gift idea for your mother, your father, or both. You see, Paint Your Life transform your photos into a one-of-a-kind hand-painted portrait done by professional artists. You can upload photos of anything you can imagine. You choose the artists and the art medium. They've even got great frames. It all takes less than five minutes to get started, and you can get your portrait in as little as two weeks. You can give the most meaningful gift you've ever given at paintyourlife.com. And there's no risk. If you don't love the final painting, your money is refunded, guaranteed. And right now is a limited time offer. Get 20% off your painting. That's right. 20% off and free shipping. To get this special offer, just text the word wrestle to 87204. That's wrestle to 87204. Text wrestle to 87204. Paint your life. Celebrate the moments that matter most. Message and data rates may apply. See paintyourlife.com slash terms for details. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as um, simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the Deal. deal. Listen to the deal. Listen to the deal on Spotify. Um, for lavender. So you, okay. So, uh, Harley race here. What's his, wow. That was some manpower. What's the reputation that Harley has amongst the boys in the locker room? Of course he had been a longtime promoter and of course a grizzled veteran and a respected champion. Does he garner a lot of respect to the business or is there some resentment from maybe prior dealings with him? No, I think Harley is one of those guys that 
was respected and to this day is still respected by anybody that ever got to work with him. Harley's man's man and one of the toughest son of a guts you'll ever meet in your life. Well, I guess the reason I ask that is I know he's teaming with Honky Talk Man, and of course Honky Talk Man is never short on an opinion, and he's been known to bury a motherfucker or twenty. So do you think Harley and uh Honky Talk got along? I don't think they did not get along to my knowledge. So, you know, I don't know that anybody is going to, at least in their right mind is going to let it be known that they got a problem with Harley race to his face. Do you remember seeing anybody skin the cat the way Ricky, the dragon steamboat just did a couple of times there? Is that the first time it happened in the WWF? There were guys, no, there were guys, all kinds of guys that did that. Ricky steamboat just made everything look so damn easy. Yeah, he really did. And I think as a kid, this would have been one of the first times I saw this happen because it's not like it happened a lot on, uh, you know, wrestling challenge or something like that. No, it didn't. But it, you know, on the house shows, there were the guys that did it and then the guys that didn't. And, you know, Ricky steamboat is one of those performers that you look at and good God, man, he just was so good that it just looked effort, just absolutely effortless. Of course, Hacksaw Jim Duggan's temper is getting the better of him, having just been hit by a two-by-four on TV. Uh, so he's out here looking for revenge, and they're taking it out on cameramen, passers-by in the crowd who won't get the fuck out of the way because they're morons, the steps, and everybody is having to intervene here. The, uh, yeah, the- but you got to love it. it it's, it's true vintage Hacksaw Jim Duggan and, and Harley Race, and it was two tough guys. It was a natural rivalry and a natural way to kind of get them together. I, um, I think so many of us grew up on this, but it's interesting that there's so many different gimmicks here. You know, (laughs) he can't just be Harley race. He's got to be the King. He can't just be Ron Bass. He's got to be the outlaw. He can't just be Ed Leslie. He's got to be Brutus, the fucking barber beefcake. So he's a stripper with shears. I don't know what that is. We'll get into it. Then you've got a guy carrying a snake to the ring, a guy carrying a guitar to the ring. Uh, you know, a guy who is like a karate expert, another guy with a chain. It feels like there's lots of opportunities here for toys and merchandise and gimmicks that you can sell to kids. Well, it's an opportunity to make it larger than life because I don't think that, you know, when people think about, you know, Ron Bass, I go, okay, Ron Bass, but outlaw Ron Bass is somebody. It tells you in his name who the hell he is. He's an outlaw and he's a bad guy. The macho man is the macho man. It's larger than life. You don't want to see, uh, God, I forget Ricky's real name, but whatever you don't want to see Wayne Ferris. I want to see the honky tonk man. And to create larger than life characters, it helps you sell it and makes it a lot more colorful for the audience to either boo or cheer and be involved in the story. Well, it's, um, it's an interesting time in the company because you guys, and I know this is something we're going to talk about throughout the entire theme of the show, but you guys have sort of pioneered pay-per-view of course, WrestleMania three being the first time that you guys went really wide on pay-per-view prior to this people just promoted closed circuit uh but here we're doing it on pay-per-view almost as a counter programming effort for starcade 87 (coughs) and um crockett had just made a lot of interesting business deals one of which is to keep his talent from jumping ship like all of these guys did to join vince 
he starts offering guaranteed contracts. Now the guarantee works where they get paid on the houses every two weeks. And then at the end of the year, they get a lump sum balloon payment for whatever else is owed to them. And he's banking on the ability to sell some pay-per-views and have a huge financial windfall. And then the money will be there to pay these guys. So with that in mind, he makes those deals and sells them on the idea of the WWF only has one major pay-per-view a year and it's WrestleMania. Well, we may never draw as big as WrestleMania, but we're going to have four different pay-per-views. And when you add up all those four pay-per-views, you'll make more money with us and it's guaranteed. And, uh, everybody signs Lex Luger, the midnight express, the road warriors, they all stay put. Meanwhile, he goes out and purchases bill Watts territory. And the rumor and innuendo is Watts knew his territory was drying up. Ticket sales were were way down based on the oil business taking a massive hit in his area. And that obviously being the primary industry. So he decides, Hey, you know what? Let's just copy the other business model. The other guys do, and let's get a lot of television going and we can become a TV company. So he sends JR out to negotiate TV in these different markets, buying TV for a thousand dollars here and $1,500 there. And the hope is he'll be able to have X number of households watching, and then he can go sell national sponsors. So maybe we can't draw house shows, but we'll be able to sell national sponsorships. Well, he found out the same thing, Vince McMahon, and you probably already know national sponsors don't clamor for wrestling. So that starts to become a project that runs in the red in a major way. So according to the rumor and innuendo, he makes an effort to get signed to ESPN. And when that fails, he calls Vince and threatens him with an antitrust lawsuit. And if that won't work, he demands that Vince buy him. Vince takes a pass. So instead, according to the rumor and innuendo and the rumor, the legend, JR calls and brokers a deal with Crockett under the idea that, Hey, Vince is about to buy us. And, uh, if he gets our network and he's got his existing network and a USA deal and pay-per-view, uh, that's the end of Crockett. So almost out of fear, they negotiate a deal for over $4 million for the UWF to be sold to Jim Crockett. Now, of course, that doesn't actually happen that way. In the end, Jr. gets a good gig and Watts winds up with 1.2 or 1.3 million, somewhere in there, depending on who you believe. But the wrestling network, TWN, which would be what they called the new merged syndicated networks that Crockett had and Watts had, would present Starcade 87. And this is going to be their first big super pay per view. And they hope that the UWF can run as their own territory and have their own champions. Crockett will do the same. And then we can kind of run like super pay per views and just rake in the money. So they announce Starcade 87. Vince McMahon takes this, according to the rumor and innuendo, as a personal affront for him. And he decides, you know what? I'm going to do a pay-per-view that day too. And we're going to call it survivor series. And at first the cable systems are tickled with this because they think, Hey, what a combo package. We'll have two wrestling pay-per-views the same day. If you're a wrestling fan, this will be the best day ever. You get food and family, and then you can overdose on all your favorite wrestling shows. And McMahon says, Nope, you can't run them head to head. So the cable companies make those guys move earlier. Vince doesn't like that either. And says, as a matter of fact, If you carry Starcade, you can't have WrestleMania. 
and almost every cable system decides to go ahead and follow Vince McMahon here because he had such a huge success with WrestleMania three. It was a proven moneymaker for the cable systems. So four pay-per-view cable systems or cable systems in the Carolinas say, uh, no, fuck off. We're covering Starcade, which makes sense because that's the Crockett era. And one in San Jose, I guess, to make sure that Dave Meltzer got it. And, uh, so five cable systems, roughly carry Starcade and like 20,000 people buy it on pay-per-view when Crockett realizes he's been blocked on pay-per-view. He goes and rents out a hundred closed circuit locations and tries to sell tickets that way. But in the end, 30 something thousand people saw Starcade and over 300,000 people saw survivor series. And it was the beginning of the end, or maybe the end of the end for Jim Crockett promotions. So that's what we've been led to believe from Dave Meltzer and the dirt sheets and what's the smart fan narrative has been poke holes in that as much as you can, Bruce. Well, it's, it's just simply a business decision is all it is. And more people wanted to see the WWF than wanted to see the NWA. And you go back and you look at history where Vince did with WrestleMania one and two, and also three in a lot of places, but he gambled on the closed circuit business and he went out and gambled everything that he had. And, and he did close circuit before pay-per-view was even a thing. When pay-per-view started, they did the wrestling classic. It did very well. And then WrestleMania two, uh, they had some pay-per-view, but not nearly to the extent that they, they had for WrestleMania three, but they also did a lot of closed circuit for WrestleMania two as well. So, Vince did spend the money, did gamble, was successful with closed circuit, and he advertised the hell out of the product. Uh, as you get closer and you have WrestleMania three, which was a huge success. And then we, we come along and now someone is coming in and they're challenging, you know, wanting to get on pay-per-view. And Vince was like, well, wait a minute. You know, we are in many, many ways, we brought pay-per-view to the forefront and it was the WWF that had actually made pay-per-view a thing that people talked about because other than, and I don't even think boxing was doing that much on pay-per-view at that time. Um, we were the big dogs. We were the ones that had actually performed and made pay-per-view profitable for the cable companies and for the company itself. So when Vince hears a competing show coming in. He's like, well, wait a minute. Um, if you guys want WrestleMania, we don't want you to take this show. It was the cable companies that said, then give us an alternative. And that's when Vince says, okay, I'll give you a show. It wasn't Vince going out and saying, fuck Crockett. It was like, if you don't want us to take this, give us something else to put on. And that's when he said, okay, we'll give you another event to put on. And he delivered, he says, but you can't have both. You can't do, you can't have our event and their event. If you want to have WrestleMania, then you carry WWF exclusive product and, uh, you'll get WrestleMania, but we don't want to, we're not going to give you this event. If you're going to run their event as well. 
that is a little different than the way it's been presented. But what you well, said, that's the way it happened. That's why it's different because Meltzer and those people that want to create the narrative, they don't they don't want to hear that. They want to look at the vindictive end of it, and they don't want to look at well, Jim Crockett hadn't been out there and hadn't done closed circuit all over the country. He'd been very successful in the Carolinas with his closed circuit and with his shows, and and had done great business. But when Crockett ventured out and tried to go national, he was not successful. I wasn't arguing to say that it was different because it was wrong. I'm saying it's different and it makes total sense. If Vince is going to go to the trouble of having to do this presentation, because I imagine the cost of doing a pay-per-view, which you've told us before, what do you think it costs to do a pay-per-view like in 2008, $500,000? Yeah. What yeah, do you th- in 2008, you're looking at it probably, uh, probably about 750,000 for a pay-per-view production. What do you think it was here in 87? I'd tell you it was probably about 250. So the idea is if you're Vince McMahon, I don't know what the gate was for this, but it's probably not $250,000. So you're going in the red to do it. So you want to hope that you can make it up on the back end. And the only way to do that is to sell a lot of pay-per-views. Well, why would you do that if you knew you were going directly into competition? You need to make sure you can get a return. Obviously, they did. It worked out. Crockett was done. Now, on the Crockett side, those guys would say this was dirty pool. I argue with Tony Schiavone that I thought it was a shrewd business move. Where do you land on this? Do I even have to guess? No, it was a great business move, and and that's exactly what it was. It was a business move. It wasn't, you know, Jim Crockett nationally was not a threat to those people that loved the NWA and were Crockett stalwarts and NWA stalwarts. They loved their product and and that's great. But nationally at that time, it it wasn't a big threat to Vince who was doing business uh, across the States and doing very well. I'm, um, I'm a big fan of that era Crockett. I can admit that in hindsight, this show does not age as well as Starcade 87. There's still some interesting booking decisions on Starcade 87, but when I watched that show back this week, I did find it much more enjoyable than this presentation. You're a wrestling fan. Can you be honest for just a minute and at least admit that while this production wise may have been better, the actual wrestling was better on Starcade 87. The card was better. It was more interesting. Well, I didn't just watch Starcade 87, so I couldn't give you a fair uh, assessment of it, but I enjoyed this show and I enjoyed the star power. And I do think that the guys worked hard. It's a completely different style and it's a completely different presentation. So it's some people like yogurt. Some people like, you know, high fat ice cream. This was high fat ice cream. Theirs was yogurt. Uh, I don't remember this referee's name. Who's this referee? I have no idea. <laughs> this was this was a referee that was a part of the uh, ring crew in the Northeast and came down, and uh, I, for the life of me, I couldn't tell you his name. Chat me up about the, um, the ring skirt here because over the years, of course, the look of the WWE rings has changed quite a bit. I've always been a fan <laughs> of this color canvas. I've always been a fan of the red, white, and blue ropes. I've got one of those old school blue block turnbuckles. I've always been a fan of those, but the actual, you know, the skirts here are kind of interesting because they're almost like a, 
a, a much more shiny reflective material, uh, that you guys were known for at the time, almost like a tarp. And then over the top of it, not covering the whole length of the ring at all is the survivor series banner who put that together. And, uh, was the idea for it to look like a fucking add on? When did you guys decide, Hey, we just need like cover the whole thing here. Well, Nelson Swegler is the one who had awarded that stuff and, and had those done as you see the banners up in the corner of the arenas as well. Um, I was laughing at that when I saw that first big wide shot, like, oh my God, I could see Vince going crazy today. But it, again, it was new. It was something that we didn't always do. We had the plain ring skirts for superstars and challenge, and this was something new. And I have no idea if Nelson just kind of ordered the wrong size or thought that this would be fine. But it looks like ass in comparison to the production value of today and even, you know, a year later at this point. It's an interesting time in the business here. Did you guys feel like you were still, um, you know, trying to put other people out of business at this point? Are you trying to express, you know, what's the goal? What's Vince's? Do you remember Vince being like, global domination i mean what's what what's the end game here at this point well i've never known vince to want to put anybody out of business and that has never been his goal in everything and as as i've said many times going back to when he went around with the territories he went in and offered every single one of those guys an opportunity to be a part of what he was doing on a global basis and they all they all told him they were going to put him out of business and his goal was to make his business the best that he could. So Vince was just simply looking at being the very best and presenting a product that a lot of people are going to come out and pay money to see and support in every avenue that they possibly could. Okay. Nice PR statement. What was the goal? Dude, that, what was there? The goal, the goal was to make money. Okay. They're, the they're, goal, ma- you, they're making money into here. business to put somebody else out of business. I'm not you're not going to make money. I'm not saying that I'm saying was his goal to be wrestle like the UFC, like people just commonly refer to MMA in the United States by saying UFC. And when people go out to dinner, they don't say I'd like a soda. They say, I want a Coke. And when they need to blow their nose, they ask for a Kleenex. And when they have a cut on their hand, they ask for a bandaid. Those are all brands and WWS a brand. So my question, I'm, I'm aware, uh, did he want wrestling to be replaced by WWF? So when you thought about wrestling in the WWF wrestling in America, you didn't call it wrestling. You called it WWF. Do you remember that being a particular 100%? Okay. That's what I was trying to drag out well, of you. But, but you said was his goal to put people out of business. That was not his goal. His goal was not to put people out of business. His goal no. was to be the only brand. <laughs> Which means put people out of business. I mean, here's, I'm not saying you want anyone else to do poorly, but you want the example I used was global domination. He wanted, these aren't wrestlers. These are superstars, blah, 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 blah. So we hear all of this that, which leads me to believe that there was some master plan that whenever anybody thought about wrestling anywhere in the world, they didn't call it professional wrestling. They called it the WWF. 100%. Do you remember there being any sort of metrics for, we want to be in this many countries. We want this much top line revenue. We're aiming for this number rating. 
we want to sell this many tickets. Do you remember any sort of discussion about goddamn pal? We know we made it when we insert milestone here. Absolutely not. Because he, he just wanted to do the most that he could. He wanted to beat himself every year. He wanted to do more than the previous year. And if there was something bigger than he all, no matter what it was, you know, you, people laughed at the network. People laughed at going into the silver dome. They constantly always say, oh, the old man's lost it. Vince will always have a new goal. And, you know, he, he said this, he, he wants to have wrestling on the moon type shit. Um, if anybody's going to do it, he'll do it. So he's always looking for that next step, whether it's, uh, who the hell knows, but he'll figure something out. Be the first one in Antarctica, whatever it is. He's always looking for bigger and better. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. Honky Tonk Man here, running out of town with his Intercontinental title. The Macho Man, reigning supreme here. What did you think of this opening match? I thought the match was okay. Um, here, here's my my bitch, and it's kind of my bitch throughout this, which to start with and to end with. Here, you're trying to build Savage which was the goal here. You got all these strong baby faces, but you don't beat honky. Who's the champion. I just felt that with all that damn star power out there, we should have had a finish instead of honky, just taking a walk. No, I I totally agree. And and that's one of the things I wanted to ask. Do you, can you freestyle a guest? Do you think honky didn't want to do the, didn't want to do the job that night? No, I think it's, it's Vince and Pat's way of protecting him. Well, I mean, it's a non-title match. He can lose and still keep the belt. Protect him. God damn. They see him beat. I don't want to see him beat. Just didn't want to, you know, they wanted to protect those guys. It was, it was all about saving every attraction and we quite hadn't figured it out yet. Uh, the argument from my end was one of God, this is a paying audience. The pay-per-view audience is a paying audience. They're paying for it, so give it to them. I love these interview segments, especially with the heels here, because everyone is doing like nondescript chatter to themselves. Almost everyone's mouth is moving and everyone's talking, and there's just a lot of noise and commotion. And it feels like that would have been a note from the director. Hey, everybody, be kind of talking to yourself, pumping your up, cutting your own promo. And so you just hear like a bunch of noise, and you can very seldom make out exactly what's being said here. Who's producing this? Whose idea was that? Vince is producing these 
and Vince is on set right there producing every bit of it and uh, directing the cameras and directing all of the talent all the way through. Now they're promoting this, of course, as being Andre the Giant's first time in a wrestling ring since WrestleMania three, which we know, of course, is not true. You can hear all about Hogan 87 in our archives. Uh, he was working quite a lot that year on the house show loops, but they're saying this is the very first time. And of course it wasn't on TV, so it didn't happen. That was that era, right? Exactly. If you didn't see it on TV, by God, it didn't happen. And that's the idea here, you know, pre-internet is this is the rematch you've been waiting for from WrestleMania three. And we opened the show with Jesse Ventura being a big heel and saying, Hey, Andre, the giant was screwed. He had a three count. The ref counted three. He should be the real world champion. Yada, yada, yada. Uh, is that the way you remember the initial push for this being, this is going to be the first time we get Hogan and Andre in the same ring together at the same time. It feels like a natural decision to make given the success of WrestleMania three, the, the entire whole build around this was Hulk Andre too. And the promos leading up to it was the stare down from WrestleMania three with Hulk and Andre and the lightning bolt coming right in between them. And the very next time you're going to see this is at survivor series. You guys were doing a lot of local promos at the time too. And pay-per-view was really at the infancy. Do you remember the way you tried to explain pay-per-view to someone for the very first time? Oh my God. (laughs) We had to, you know, it, it was all new and people, even if you had cable, just because you had cable did not mean that you had pay-per-view capabilities. So for a lot of people in a lot of cable systems, you had to go and get a special box, a converter box that you would have to go to the cable company and pick up and bring to your house or, or have them come in and install it. So it was a hassle to get pay-per-view. We had to explain all that to people. It wasn't just call your local cable operator. It was, Hey, call your local cable operator, do this, do this, do this, do this, do this, have them come out and be sure and order cause you had to start the promotion two months in advance, give people time to get it. Uh, what's your favorite glamor girls match? Oh my God. There was this one. Okay. In Trent, New Jersey. Okay. In 1988, February, I believe. And it was, uh, it was a barn burn. Let me tell you. Donna Christianello, Don Marie, uh, quite the squad that we got here. And of course the lady with the gold around the waist. How about her? The fabulous moolah by God. You mean, hey, we you didn't mean, have you mean, May Young at this time. You mean sensational oh, no, well, Sherry Sherry. Martell, I'm sorry. What's wrong with you? I don't know. I think you're like two seconds ahead of me. I said one, two, three, play, motherfucker. Well, I played it at the same time. My then God. Then my little circle went around for like a couple seconds. And Velvet McIntyre, wonderful young lady. How about, how about old school rock and Robin? That's a name that we hadn't seen in a while. No, we had Jake, the snake and Sam Houston's sister by God. I don't think a lot of people know that we get lots of questions about the jumping bomb angels. How did they come into the promotion? Uh, the jumping bomb angels were a sensation, I believe in all Japan wrestling at the time, but, uh, Judy and Leilani worked a lot of dates over in Japan and they were having these incredible matches with the jumping bomb angels. So they came back over and they said, Hey, 
if you want to do some really cool women's matches, we're having these great matches with this tag team in Japan. And it'll be, it'll take women's wrestling to the next level. So we took a look at them, brought them in. They had in just insane matches. It wasn't the traditional uh, fabulous moolah women's match. And brought them in. Vince liked them. And so we just booked them. I think they came in roughly for about six months and went all the way around, went around with Judy and Leilani. Why don't you think their stay was longer? Just you guys didn't know what to do with the women at the time. Well, they didn't speak English, number one. So it was hard to communicate and get them to do promos and get people to like them and know anything about them. You know, we tried some different vignettes with them, but beyond the match and, and bell to bell, it just didn't, there wasn't a whole lot there. What has Vince learned from 1987 to 2007, 2017 with Oscar? Wow. Not a lot, man. I haven't seen any great promos, but you know, her presentation has been great with Oscar. Um, eventually you're going to have to get to the point where you're going to have to see some personality and make me care one way or another for her. How about Moolah? Uh, working her ass off here with Sherry. This is better than I imagined it might be. Oh my God. Anytime that Moolah would have the opportunity to take somebody, especially somebody like Sherry and blow them up. She's going to take it and show you this old lady can go. And here Moolah's, I guess in her fifties. I think Moolah's about 79 here. I think Moolah was always 79. Even in the 60s, I think Moolah was 79. That's what's interesting is it feels like Moolah and J.J. Dillon were the same age for 40 years. Yes. Yes. I mean, their doctors may disagree, but me on the outside looking in, same, same. True that. True that. You know, Velvet McIntyre always looked like she uh, dipped. She just kind of had the the teeth and she always looked like she had a dip into me. And Donna Christianello is one tough old broad as well, man. Jesus Christ. Did uh, Donna Christianello ever make you a casserole? No, she did not. Never did. My God, never did. Uh, well, speaking of casseroles, what were you guys doing here on Thanksgiving? Was there catering in the back? Does Vince take everybody out to dinner? Do people get to eat some sort of Thanksgiving meal for the holiday? What's the plan? Huge catering. Oh my God. Great catering, man. We had turkey and dressing and cranberry and mashed potatoes and sauerkraut. Just everything that you traditionally would have on Thanksgiving. Are you being serious? Yes. Okay. Cause by comparison, uh, Tony Schiavone said they had, um, they had like Miller light. Oh my God, our, our, this, okay. I'll give you the sidebar because, and I'll answer one of, uh, the fans questions that was on Facebook that was asking about why wasn't the ultimate warrior on the show? Uh, well, ultimate warrior wasn't really an official part of the roster. I guess he was, but he was doing C towns at the time and he had come in and it was the first time that, uh, he had been around everybody on the crew. So warriors there, he's this big bastard. Uh, Hogan didn't know who he was, but he sees this big monster ultimate warrior and he's loading up his plate with just mounds of mashed potatoes and, uh, dressing and Turkey and just all everything that you can imagine. And yes, the catering was off the chart. That's one thing I remember 
about the Thanksgiving uh, catering was always excellent. And so Hogan says, well, if that big bastard can eat all that crap, so can I. And Hogan loads up and eats this big, huge meal and then ended up paying for it. And he's sitting there and he got to take a big shit right before he goes out. He's like, how the hell did that big bastard do it? And I said, he's not working. And he just thought that he was, he could do it because warrior did it. But that's, the catering was great. That's awesome. Um, does Vince, uh, you know, in a big pay-per-view like this, we've heard, you know, once upon a time that Paul Heyman would sort of rally the troops with ECW and give like a motivational speech. Does such a thing exist in this era of the WWF? No. No, you're not going to see, you know, Vince would, Vince hated those meetings. You know, he liked one-on-one time with the guys, but he, he hated having meetings with all the talent. He, he didn't, didn't like doing that. You know, fine with the one-on-one time, but he wasn't a big rah-rah guy. And there's old Izuki with, uh, Judy and just having, you know, this was stuff that people hadn't seen ever in the States. And th- these girls were definitely ahead of their time and, and made it, you know, the match a lot more memorable and, and just a lot, whole hell of a lot more physical than what they had been used to with women's wrestling at the time. Do you remember there being a big advocate in the office for putting a women's match on pay-per-view here? How does this get here? It does feel a little out of place at the time. They were an attraction. So since this pay-per-view was an attract, this pay-per-view itself because of the elimination and everything was an attraction pay-per-view. So definitely wanted to have the women be a part of it. I mean, how crazy was that? That suplex that, uh, the jumping mob bomb angel just threw on Sherry. I mean, that's way, way, way ahead of its time. That's the old Dory Funk Jr. <laughs> double arm suplex that hurts like hell. There's no way to, pre- it just, it, it hurts like hell. And yes, they, they were definitely, God, they were good. And it was different. And and then you had, you know, we were, we're presenting to them, Sherry Martell, who by the way, looks great here and, and rock and Robin, you know, this was what we thought the future of women's wrestling was. By the way, it's worth mentioning. This might be as roll tied as Sherry Martell ever looked. Sherry was, had got on top of her game because she was so blown up when she won the title from Moolah and Moolah beat the crap out of her. And Vince told her, he says, Sherry, you need to get in shape or we don't have anything for you. And she did. She became the Sherry Martell that we wanted, that we had seen beforehand. Do you remember, I mean, were you in that meeting when Vince sort of laid that down for her? For her to get out, for her to get into shape? Yeah. Oh yeah. Because it was at a TV after she won the title and Moolah was upset. Moolah was pissed off. And Moolah told Vince that she just wasn't ready. Did Sherry, um, have heat with Moolah after sort of tattletailing? No, cause Moolah did it to her face. She didn't tattletale. She told Sherry and she told Vince with Sherry there. Wow. Well, tattletale was like, get your ass in shape. If you want to work with me and you want to be the standard bearer, this guy's giving you an opportunity to go out and be the champion. I gave you my belt which Moolah still thought it was her belt at the time. <laughs> you know, she's like, I gave you my belt and you're going to go out there and not be in shape and be ready to go and let an old lady blow you up. 
Wow. That was a hell of a motivational speech though, was it not? Well, yeah. So, I mean, it's not, you know, she wanted the best. She wanted the best for Vance and she just got on her because she was just so pissed off. I remember that night, man, she was pissed off, wanted to beat the shit out of Sherry in the dressing room. And Sherry was in no condition to defend herself. She was so blown up and beaten up from the match in the ring. How many of these women, um, gave part of their payday on this night to Moolah? Um, probably Donna and Don Marie, um, Leilani and Judy had, had broken away and they, they had broken away from Moolah at this point. So I think probably just, uh, Donna and Don Marie, maybe velvet too. So do you think they, uh, they all lived in the May young fabulous moolah compound? All of them did at one point, except for the jumping bomb angels. Sherry lived there too. I don't know. Sherry lived there. Sherry wasn't one of moolah's girls. Sherry, you know, was the outsider and, and the fact that, uh, you know, Leilani was a really nice lady, really nice lady. She's a tough old broad too. Did, but, uh, uh, did rock and Robin come through there for her? I think Robin did get sent there for a little while. It's just such a fascinating, I mean, that's a reality show right well, there. I'd love for oh, that to be a Netflix oh, series. Good God. Oh my God. That's what glow yeah. should have been, you know? Yes. When I yeah, see, no one would have believed it. Right. Um, talk to me a little bit about what the pay was like in this era. Because this is really the infancy of pay-per-view. So at this point, the boys aren't even really smart to what the money's going to be. And and frankly, neither is Vince. He's not really sure himself. These contracts are structured as just come do a match and I'll pay you up based on the house or. Well, I I know you're going to be weird about numbers, but give us some sort of an inkling of of how the contracts are structured in the infancy of pay-per-view like this. You got $25 guarantee for TV. That's it. No guarantee other than that. So you're at the discretion of the promoter to pay you what, what they think they're going to pay you for a pay-per-view, especially at this time in the business, you were waiting, uh, 90 days before we ever even got the reports back from the pay-per-view companies as to how we did. So we didn't even know what our income was yet. You would do samplings and you'd call around to different pay-per-view companies and say, hey, how many buys did we get? But you're at the mercy of an operator or somebody. We didn't have computers. We didn't have all the stuff that we have now that you can just pull up and instantaneously find out what your business was. You're going on the word of somebody in in bumfuck Egypt that's telling you, yeah, we, y- y- y'all did really good. Man, I, I, I've never had so many pay-per-view orders for anything. I think it did better than WrestleMania. WrestleMania may have done five. This one might have done four. <laughs> and I'm being that literal, but there were that many different companies in different levels you had to go through to ever get your money and ever find out how you did. It took forever, and then the money would trickle in just long after that. Do you remember one of those pay-per-view checks coming in and it being particularly great or particularly bad? You remember hearing about 
Vince just got a check for $17 million or Vince just got a check for eight bucks. <laughs> Something. No, cause it wasn't, no, it wasn't one check. It, it, in those days, man, you're being paid by the individual, uh, cable, cable companies system. and they're, they're coming into like, um, got viewers choice. So the cable company now sends the check to viewers choice or whoever there were like three or four big ones. And then they would take their pieces out and then they would gather everything up and then they would send in and, and it would come in bits and pieces over a while, but it, it just, it would take forever. And I got by that. The time, Do you remember a big one or a little one? No, not necessarily. Um, who's making the, you know, we've talked a lot about the seamstresses with the company. Did you guys have seamstresses on staff by this point? Or is there someone that Vince hires just as a one-off for pay-per-views like this in case someone needs help the day of a show? Absolutely not. This, everybody was responsible for their own gear and their own outfits. 100%, 100% at this time, there was, there was nobody there to fix anything. If it ripped that, that wasn't even a, a thought that would occur to us, you know, guys, you got trunks and boots, take care of your stuff. Who, um, who is this referee? I don't remember this guy either. That's Jim Corderos. No, it's not. Okay. Sorry. Are you serious? Yes. Wow. I would not have guessed that. That's Jim Corderas on the outside and Joey Morella on the outside. I mean, Joey Morella on the outside, Jim Corderas in the ring. Jim Corderas is uh, a friend of the show, listens every week. We uh, interact on Twitter every now and again. I didn't recognize him with all the fucking hair. I had gotten used to uh, Jim Corderas the way he looked at the end of his run, and uh, I didn't realize I was looking at the high school senior version of himself here. 30 years ago, man, we all had more hair and looked a little bit different. Mine was even blonde. Really? Yeah. Scary. But you look at, you know, just look at the different level, man, with with the bombs and and Judy and Leilani in there. It was it was just so different. And of course, the referee inadvertently rang the bell, thought Cordero's counted to 3. And I love looking at Howard Finkel on the outside with his legs crossed, sitting back, like just, <laughs> just kind of watching the matches. That would drive Vince nuts too. Be involved in the match, God damn it, Howard! You look like shit. Shout out to Cesaro here, one of the original giant swings on WWF pay per view. <laughs> Where do you think he got it from? So in the truck at this point, you know, calling the shots and uh, playing director, is it Cur- is it uh, Kerwin Silfies or Kevin Dunn or who is it at this point? Kerwin Silfies was the director. Kevin Dunn at this point was on the uh, uh, announce position with Gino and Jesse, giving them cues. Where are you sitting here? Uh, here I am at Gorilla. Who's beside so I'm you? I'm on. I'm, I'm on headset. I was by myself. Nobody hung out at gorilla. Then that was a shit position. <laughs> I believe Louie Dondero would come in and check from time to time, but, um, no gorilla was 
back then that was just the last point. That was the curtain and given time cues to the, uh, to the referee and the timekeeper down there. So, you know, it was, it was a completely different thing, completely different than it is now. Now it's the nerve center. Back then, uh, did Vince still set up an office inside the arena? He had his office, which was a dressing room inside the arena, but Vince would be kind of all over the place. What did Vince, Vince didn't sit there watching the matches at that time? What did Vince set up as his office in this era? Did he have a desk and chairs or a couch or if you were no. going to go to Vince's office in 1987 at an arena, what would that have looked like? Just like a dressing room. And that was it in those days, in those days, like in 90, in, in, uh, in 87, he had a monitor, uh, didn't even have a headset yet at that time. He had a monitor and he also had an audio monitor where he could hear commentary and things like that. But it was a dressing room. That was it. Nothing special, just vents on the door. So it, it was absolutely nothing out of the ordinary. It was just a place for him to go and have meetings if he needed to have private meetings. And then Velvet comes in and just, we'll slow this shit down right away easily. Well, let's, um, let's cruise on over to Facebook. We encouraged you guys to ask us some questions and, uh, Bruce, Facebook and Twitter have come out in mass. They are a big fan of us doing this. Uh, Tony Barker asks, were there any plans to expand the WWF's women tag titles or make them more a part of the WWF landscape? Or did Vince soon feel they were a non-factor? We soon felt they were a non-factor. We created the tag titles for the Jumping Bomb Angels and Judy and Leilani to have a little program over tag titles. And beyond that, it just didn't seem to take off. There wasn't a whole lot of interest beyond the special attraction factor. Michael Scott Moore suggests that there was a rumor that Moolah cost the bomb angels and the glamor girls, their WrestleMania four match for the tag titles. Can you confirm that that was ever discussed? No. Okay. Um, well, lots of questions about Hulk. We'll get there in a minute. I feel like we need to wait just a second on that one. You know, the, I think, um, people are really kind of oddly, maybe not so oddly fascinated with this, this moolah situation. Lots of questions like this. Uh, Tony wants to know how much of a cut did moolah get for the ladies match? Well, moolah, moolah didn't get a cut on, on them unless they had a deal with moolah. And I think moolah got 10%, but she's got to, you know, she's got to rely on them to pay her. We didn't pay moolah then to pay the girls. So I guess my question is, yeah, that makes sense. Um, the girls aren't all just getting $25 freestyle. Since you're saying it's promoter discretion, are, you know, did the jumping bomb angels make a thousand dollars for this show? Did they make $5,000 for this show? Did they make $50,000 for this show? Well, they didn't make 50. Sure. And they probably made, I don't know. And to be clear, I'm not suggesting anyone was ripped I, off. I, Nobody yeah, knew no what idea, they were maybe. doing. 2,500 bucks. Who knows? Yeah. Well, and again, I know some people are going to hear that and say, oh my God, they made all the, they, nobody, like you said, nobody fucking knew. Like this is all brand new territory. And, and if they did make $2,500 at that point, 
no disrespect Huge. to them. It's probably the biggest payday of their career. So while you may say, oh, that's not nearly enough. They probably said, holy shit, this is the biggest check we ever got. Right. Yeah. And, and you go back and I remember guys in the, uh, opening matches at WrestleMania three, just bragging about how they made $10,000. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what the scuttlebutt was and what, uh, you know, where that range was, but a lot of guys made more. Some guys I'm sure made less. In hindsight, do you think the, uh, we got lots of questions about the jumping bomb angels. People are just fascinated with them. A lot of people like Ian Andrew Jones feel like the jumping bomb angels and the glamour girls stole the show this night. Do you think this was a little bit of a coming out party for the jumping bomb angels? It does feel like they're way ahead of their time. It was. And, and, and yes, they were, they were so damn good. And we wanted, uh, it would have been great if there could have been a way to just get more personality out of them and to be able to tell some stories with them, and get them more involved versus having great matches. And that's what it boiled down to. And they were only having great matches with Judy and Leilani. When you put them in there with someone else, whether it be Sherry and, and Robin or whoever else, the matches weren't the same. They, they couldn't work. Uh, they couldn't work the style. Uh, the bomb angels couldn't work, uh, our style and our girls were having a difficult time keeping up with them. So it didn't look good on either side because it looked sloppy and shitty. How about this bump that, uh, Jimmy Hart takes off the ring? Tremendous. <laughs> you know, Jimmy is so underrated, but Jimmy was so damn good and worked his ass off. Never drank, never did drugs and was the first one at the building. The last one to leave. I got to tell you when I first saw, uh, cause I, I had kind of forgotten this card myself. And when I first saw the lineup. I thought, Oh, I'm going to skip that women's match. It was actually better than I thought it was going to be. So pleasantly surprised. And you look at, you know, the, the graphic that was just up there with the survivor series and I'm being super technical now, many years later, how dirty it was and, and production people will look at it and go, Ugh. but in comparison to today's graphics and what we, what we do, um, it was horrible. What a clusterfuck we're about to see here. We're about to see 900 men in the ring at the same time. Uh, a super interesting situation here. I think with this pairing of all these different tag teams, it almost is like a hall of fame class of tag teams for the most part. And demolition is going to lead their team to the ring with their entrance music, but they're going to announce that the heart foundation are the team captains. Kind of interesting. No, you think? Yeah, <laughs> but the feeling was that demolition had the most recognizable music and the strongest music for all of them. So that, that was the reason that that was done and to save time. And you, you go forward and later on we would do individual entrances for everybody, but, oh my God, I'm looking at, uh, just look at the talent in this shot, Bobby Heenan, Haku, Tonga, Demo, Brett, Neidhart, Valentine. Oh yeah. And there's Dino Bravo. Um, I was hoping you're going to say that. And one of the things I noticed right there. Is Jimmy Hart the hardest working man on this whole fucking show? There's been three matches. He's about to work his third match. He just took a bump off the ring and then ran to the back to switch jackets. I just think, I mean, this dude's working hard. Hey, uh, it's it's time. It's time. I need you to sing the Russian national anthem. You've done this before, but it's been a little while. So let's go ahead and have a little Russian sing along. 
eat my crotch out, do that there, go down, lick the eyes. I like it like that, for to be a Did you just say what I think you said? I sang the Russian national anthem. Well, it's Russian. Translated means my love of my motherland, Russia. Look at that. Don't you love the effort that Fuji put into painting his face? What I found interesting is when I watched this back this week, as these guys are coming to the ring, uh, Jesse Ventura made mention and he said, you know, some of these guys come to the ring. I can't help, but feel like they remind me of the stalkers from the running man. Jesse's going to get his plugs in by God, but you know what? Anyway, here's what I thought. I thought, you know, this, these days Vince might have a problem with that, but back then, man, that was some real mainstream publicity. Running man was a. A major motion picture for real. Oh, we nah, we didn't we we told him to get that kind of stuff in. That helped us big time. He didn't have a problem with it at all. But, oh my God, look at Haku and just how Jesus, he's a machine. But I, you know, I was talking about Fuji's people sometimes that ask me about why Fuji didn't paint his face, and. So Fuji used to say, he goes, ah, oh, boy, son, yeah, the, the pain in my face break out. I can't do it. And my eyes, I can't open my eyes because of the face. But he would do it around his eyes. <laughs> Just Fuji. You got to love him. Now, look at all these yahoos here. Yeah, it is a little bit of a. Uh... A difference from what we just saw. Of course, we see dynamite kid who we haven't talked about a lot here on the show. He's on the far left. We get tons of questions about him. Here he is. Of course, one of the greats, Tito Santana, Rick Martel, Davy boy Smith, and then some other guys, the, the bees, the killer bees and do you yeah, have Paul Roma and Jim powers. Do you have power heat with, um, power and glory's not here. Well, you know what it's I mean? the young stallions. Uh, Roma. Yeah. Them guys. Um, do you have heat with B Brian Blair? No. Why? I don't know. I've always got the impression you didn't care for him. No, I just saw Brian the other day. I, I got no problem with Brian. Well, you saw Terry. Or Jim. I saw Jim too. You saw Terry Taylor the other day. That doesn't mean you don't have heat with him. Well, yeah, that's true. No, I have no heat with Brian Blair. I like Brian. I feel like we should mention here cause we haven't so far. You actually ran into Terry Taylor the other day. Share with that. You know, uh, that- you know what? I, I, I shook Terry's hand and I thanked him for all the material that he's given me in this podcast and his response. He walked away. Real time. Yeah. You know, I just had a, a conversation with Tony Schiavone last week about Paul Roma and I freestyled that I felt like Paul Roma had gotten a little bit of a bad rap because Paul Romo had a good look and he was a decent wrestler. But I feel like people just shit on him because he was put into a spot where, I mean, he didn't have a choice. I mean, he, he was set up to fail with the horseman and I thought power and glory with he and Hercules when I was a kid, pretty fun tag team. You think Paul Roma gets a rap unfairly or did he earn the shit reputation that people try to throw on him? No, he earned it. He definitely earned it. Do you know who the original strike force was? No, really? 
Okay, I'll give you a hint. Uh, it was not originally Tito Santana in that role. It was someone that Tony Schiavone is very fond of. Oh, yeah, Tom Zink, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm in the loop on that. I thought you meant there was another pairing completely. Like, we were going to give it to these guys, or that was the original name for Wyndham and Rotunda. Okay, now, get ready to watch here, and then you will hear a Let me, let me ask universe. you, what, what just happened to the lighting? Uh, it went out. Uh, <laughs> that would be Ferd. Ferd was the lighting guy. And the guy that did the lighting at this time, his name was Ferd Manning. Okay. And Ferd was the lighting director for the I Love Lucy series from the 1950s and stuff. So that's the guy that was in charge of lighting. And now right about this time, we're saying like, hey, can we get those guys to move? And Kerwin is in the truck going, we need to get those guys to move on the hard camera side. I said, Kerwin, where would you like them to move to? Because as you can see, with all this mass of humanity out here, the only shots you have is your handheld and crane shots. And it just sucked for a long time because it was a lot of bodies out there and they're all just standing on the ring wondering what to do. Partners aren't even next to partners. You got bees and you got uh, bulldogs right next to each other. You got stallions in there. I mean, you got uh, people from Tonga and uh, France and Russia, all Canada, all intermingling. It's craziness. Look at this. Let's look at this. We got we got French Canadians. You got a Russian and a Mexican in the ring now. No, he's a French Canadian. Sorry. And then you got demolition people. It's it's just this is a hodgepodge. And Bobby Heenan's trying to get uh Bill Eady to move over so the handheld guy gets a better shot. All right, this is the part where you talk, Bruce. Well, I'm watching now. I'm just sitting well, here looking at big Jim Nelson, Boris Zukov, and I'm absolutely amazed at the size of his head. And you see, we had to keep going to those overhead shots just to show the mass of humanity and get people to where they can uh, actually view the action inside the ring. And then now we're thanking God that we actually have the bison head of big Jim Nelson, a.k.a. Boris Zukov, out of the damn ring. But a uh, lot of shit going on here, man. A lot of shit going on. And I think people underestimate the the working ability of one Tito Santana. And baby Rougeau. Which Rougeau? Jacques Rougeau. Like, Jesse doesn't know which Rougeau is, is in the ring right now. And now it's a French-Canadian main event anywhere in French Canada with uh, beautiful Jacques Rougeau and Dino Bravo. And bees buzzing all around. You got you to gotta love the way that uh, Brian Blair would do his bee buzz before he would jump off the second rope. It adds an awful lot to it. Dino Bravo doesn't have a clue who the hell the tag in because they haven't walked through anything but uh the former russian crusher Khrushchev, barry darso in the ring now with uh davy boy smith in brings 
Is that Tito again? You know, it does take a lot to drop that damn smash and the British Bulldog. Everybody wants to see a snap suplex by the Dynamite Kid. But Bill Eady and uh, Barry Darso ain't going for that. And Haku sure as hell is going to slow things down. Now, when you watch a chop exchange between Haku and Dynamite, who the hell you think is going to win that one? Well, I know who should win, and that's uh, Haku if Dynamite has any sense about him. Well, that's, that's assuming an awful lot, though. God, this is just so hard to watch with all those people standing up in there. What was uh, Vince's reaction? The big rhino in the ring uh, with the uh, thinking Blair is uh, who the hell is that in there now? Paul Roma, you liked him. Uh, no, I, I didn't love him. I just felt like he gets shit on unfairly. You said no, he earned. It's, the, it's not unfair. All right, well, you keep saying that. Tell us why we should shit on him. Tell us why we're right to hate him. Well, because Paul Paul could be a dick, and Paul could go in and have a very high opinion of himself. How's that different from and, you? Well, I'm deserving of the high opinion of myself. And Paul would just, you know, let everybody know that he was uh, God's gift to everybody and everything. And he wasn't as good as he thought he was. And Paul felt that because of the way that he looked, that he should have been in the main event at WrestleMania. And he did look good. Speaking of looking good, uh, when did you guys... I mean, do you, we've talked about it before, but this is the era with, uh, steroids running rampant in wrestling and Zahorian and all of that. Do you remember there being, you know, sort of the rap in the business? Hey, if you're going to go work for Vince, you've got to get on the gas. Whether it was no, fair, it whether was, it was fair or not. That, that was just the guys in the business. It was during a time that, uh, Everybody wanted that look, and no matter where you were, it was the same thing in Mid-South. Same thing in Jim Crockett. Um, the guys wanted that look, and they were going out and doing whatever they could to get that look. Well, so, you know, that's not necessarily true. I just watched the match. Sure with, it is. I just watched the match with Robert Gibson and Bobby Eaton. So, well, <laughs> no, I'm just telling you that was the tag match on the other show. Okay, I just and, watched and here we're looking at the Rougeos and the Rougeos don't have that look either. So it, it wasn't everybody. Okay. It's, it's there, Paul there Roma. It's dynamite. It, I mean, look, look it, it is almost everyone. Lex Luger, Barry Wynn. I mean, there are a lot of guys. Barry Wynn, what I'm saying is in the business at the time, there were a lot of guys that had that look and no matter where they were. You could go to a doctor at that time and you could get prescribed steroids. What, what steroid was the most popular amongst the boys at the time? Uh, Diana ball, I guess. That's the only one that I know of Diana ball and Winstrol. Those are the only two steroid names I know. There's lots of rumor and innuendo out there that the British bulldogs used to, uh, put steroids in their dog. You ever hear those rumors? I sure did. Used to piss me off. I was fixing to say you're, you're a dog person, like nobody's business. So I always, I was always curious what you thought about a roided up bulldog. Yeah. That would piss me off if I ever saw him do that. That that's not cool, but there were always those rumors. Uh, if they did that, then they're big assholes for doing that. 
Well, I mean, it could have been worse. I could, could have eaten the dog, right? Yeah. I don't think I could eat dogs. Well, I mean, he ate a dude's face once, right? I mean, that's r- different. Okay. The dude can defend himself. That's what I'm saying. If that dog was trying to bite him, he'd have bit that dog the fuck back. Okay. Maybe Greg, the, the hammer deserved it. Greg, the hammer Valentine, uh, a former, uh, big star everywhere. He went, had a phenomenal run in the mid Atlantic area, a really classic match at an early starcade with rowdy, Roddy Piper. Of course, by this point, Piper has had his farewell send off at WrestleMania three. And, uh, Greg is in the mix here. Do you think Greg is one of the more underappreciated talents from the era? I don't think enough people give him enough love. I think that Greg is one of those guys that people always look to when, if you want to get somebody over, you put him with Greg Valentine and Greg was going to get him over and you would have to earn it working with Greg, but he, he was on top everywhere and he had a hell of a top on, I mean, a hell of a run on top in the WWF too. I'm not asking this with any sort of weird, I don't want anybody to take this. Like I'm saying anything one way or another, but because of location to where he lived proximity, would Dino Bravo have had a relationship with Pat Patterson? Would that have been his end into the company? Dino, <coughs> because of the relationship and it, and it wasn't Pat, it was the Montreal office, which, uh, Dino was a part owner of. And when I, I would talk about, you know, Vince going to different places around the world and offering to work with different promoters, Mike LaBelle out in LA worked with Vince. Jack Tunney in Canada worked with Vince in Toronto and Dino Bravo and Gino Brito and, uh, the Rougeau's dad, I believe was involved. Maybe not, but Dino and Gino were definitely involved in that Montreal promotion. And that was Dino's in to come in. So they used him as a talent as well. I guess we should mention here, this show originally went down on November 26th, 1987. We've got 21,300 fans in attendance. Uh, the buy rate is going to do crazy numbers. 325,000 people purchased the pay-per-view when all the numbers are sort of tallied up, Bruce, this has to be viewed as, as a monumental success. Does it not? It was viewed as kind of a, what the hell just happened? Because I think there was a big part of Vince that didn't think this was going to draw that didn't think that people we're going to want to spend Thanksgiving around the TV watching wrestling. He didn't believe it. He, he, they had never experienced that in the Northeast. They had never promoted on holidays and just thought, okay, well, maybe some people in the South will tune in. We should remind everybody that wrestling in Greensboro had been a Thanksgiving tradition since like 61. And they had done it every single Thanksgiving. So while Greensboro wasn't necessarily a huge town, if you population wise, if you were anywhere within driving distance and a wrestling fan, you knew that was going to be a big night of wrestling. One of the biggest cards of the year and one of the best gates of the year for, if if you were a promoter would be Thanksgiving night. And they had a similar tradition in Atlanta based on lighting the Christmas tree in downtown Atlanta. And they would draw a huge crowd to that. And somebody had the genius idea of, well, Hey, let's put on wrestling nearby and see if we can't draw a house. And they start doing great business on Thanksgiving day as well, or Thanksgiving night as well. So it becomes a tradition in Greensboro and Atlanta. That's obviously the hotbed for Jim Crockett. 
and Vince now is getting in on the action, but maybe with a little trepidation, right? Yeah, very reluctant. He just, he had never seen it, hadn't experienced it. And Vince loved his Thanksgiving (laughs) holiday. That was his time to spend with family and kind of unwind for the rest of us. Thanksgiving and Christmas, those holidays were big money days. We built to those holidays. And that was, you know, the big show time of year that we would build to and always draw well and do very good houses. So it took a lot of convincing to get Vince to do a show on Thanksgiving. And later on, he would uh, obviously get off of it. But um, it was tough. And Thanksgiving was always a, a great night for us in the South. So chat me up about this building. Richfield would wind up getting the Survivor Series again in 88 and then in 92 as well. Did you guys just kind of have in your head that, hey, this is going to be the Survivor Series show or you just thought in 88, well, shit, it did so well in 87. Let's bring it back. Convenience in 88, uh, looking around and trying to find somebody. The the other issue with running on a holiday is staffing and, and your costs go up because now you got to pay people time and a half or double time or whatever the rent of the building and all your costs go up exorbitant. Another reason not to run on a, on a holiday, but hopefully the draw and the gate is going to offset that. Um, the first time that we came to Richfield, we didn't have that issue. Um, because of the friendly relationship with the building manager. And the second time was the same thing. So it was a, it was a good deal and easy to do. And then later on, I don't know if it was the third or the fourth year that we went to the Thanksgiving Eve tradition of the survivor series. It's kind of interesting to look back at this and see comments and the questions about the way this show, you see the lighting changing again here was presented differently on pay-per-view versus VHS versus versus the network. Now, of course, a lot of the music has changed, which we understand. And you can tell a lot of times it's just Vinkle doing a think doing a voiceover, uh, because they can't play the actual music that night. Um, but you also see like on the VHS release gorilla and the body didn't have their entrance on the tape, but they do on the network. Why are decisions like that made? Would that have been something you would have been involved in at the time? Well, at that time, if it was Coliseum video, that would have been most likely a timing decision made by Steve Hecht, who was the producer for Coliseum video at the time. And probably just a timing issue more than anything else and not wanting to have any dead air for Gorilla and uh, Jesse to do their entrance. And some of those are just so arbitrary and, and, it's like, okay, hey, that took too long. And it's a producer sitting in an edit suite that feels that it's just taking too long. So they cut it out. <laughs> Lots of questions as I'm scrolling through the Facebook here about Danny Davis. How did Danny Davis work himself into a spot on the show, given that background as a heel referee? Was he like really tight with? somebody in the office. I don't think there's any sort of weird connotation there. Just, you know, what, what was his end? His end was people liked his character. People didn't like his character. He was a heel. He got natural heat. 
and people like to see him get his ass kicked. So he was an entertaining character. I mean, that was his end. He was a ring crew guy that was also a referee on the ring crew. And when he, you know, they did some heel things with him as a referee and that really started getting over. So he had genuine heat and was a, he was just a character and it wasn't about having an in there. are a lot of different parts that need to be played. And Danny played his part very well. Look at how puffy bread is. Jesus Christ. Brett, Brett actually looks like he even has a little bit of a gut on him right now. And I always like the all pink. But you look at Valentine, man, and you just see, here's a guy done it all, been everywhere. <laughs> And, you know, still able to go night in, night out, unlike anybody. And Valentine's just taking Roman, now powers to town. But uh, this is kind of a who's who. You take If you take Jim Powers and Paul Roma out there, this is kind of a who's who in the wrestling business, especially in this time. And there's our unknown referee again. There's no questions on Johnny V. Uh, not a lot of questions on Johnny V, but lots of questions about Tom Zink. Uh, and you mentioned him earlier. You crawl any of the details about Tom Zink's departure from the WWF? I think they actually started out not as Strike Force, but as the Can Am Connection. Can Am Connection. Yeah. So chat me up about Tom Zink leaving because it feels like he's one of those names that's essentially been blackballed from the WWF. Tom just got a big head and Tom wanted to move on. He felt that he wasn't making enough money and said, you know what? You need me. I should be a top star and I'm not making enough money. And he kind of gave Vince an ultimatum and Vince said, thank you very much. We'll see you later. Anybody can be replaced. Zink just got a really big head really quick. And they didn't feel the same way about Tom Zink that Tom felt about himself. When Vince sees all these guys in the ring, do you know, I mean, at the, in this era, did he see any of these guys as potential single stars? Of course, we know Davey Boy would go on to have single success. We know what Bret Hart would become. Paul Roma, probably. Well, somebody that he looked at and go, good God, look at him. Um, that he, that he thought probably could have broken out, you know, both Roman powers were two young guys that had come up and they were extras doing jobs. And Vince really wanted something good for him. He liked both their looks and Jim, especially just such a nice guy. But as far as looking at them at this, at this point in their careers with where we were, I don't think that Vince saw any of them as big single stars and getting in the ring in the ring right now. One of the biggest single stars of WWE history in Bret Hart. Lots of questions about Fatu. Uh, any memories you can share with us about him? Of course, we've heard a lot about Haku, uh, but not nearly as many about Fatu. Well, this, this is, a, this is Tonga. This isn't even Fatu. This is, this is Tonga. And he was 
tried to do tried to do something with uh with Fatu, uh, not Fatu, the Tonga here at this point, but uh, tried to do something with him as a single after Snuka, because Vince always had this this thing about uh, Jimmy Snuka, and Snuka was such a huge draw for his father in the old WWF with Bob Backlund and everything that he was fascinated with that island. He wanted his island high flower, a high flyer, and tried it with Tonga. Tonga didn't work right away, sent him away, came back, repackaged him. And it just was, uh, it always was an imitation. People wouldn't accept him. And the flying headbutt of Dynamite Kid, another, you know, reason you look at him doing that every night, just, you know, every single night in his career is probably the reason, unfortunately, the dynamite's in the shape he's in today. Uh, and my, the mighty Haku, by God. Did you guys have a, uh, a monitor in the back? Had y'all watched Starcade 87 earlier in the day? No. Was there anyone talking about it in the back? No. We were there, you know, it was, did Starcade and Starcade went before us too, didn't it? It ran earlier than we did. That's right. And it did today over at whwmonday.com. Well, I knew that did, but, uh, no, nobody, nobody was really talking about it. We were just busy. It was a big day for us. This was kind of like our, you know, another WrestleMania for us because we're presenting a live show. This was the first live show that I'd ever written. And first one that I'd ever really been a part of, uh, in the WWF. So for me, I was just going nuts. Why do you think, uh, Rick Martel isn't recognized as uh, a world champion? Maybe the way he should. Um, promo lack thereof, you know, Rick great in the ring and Rick had a lot of personality that we finally got out when he did the model gimmick, but Rick just had a hard time with that French French Canadian accent and being able to, to cut promos that could identify with people. Do you think he should be in the hall of fame this next year, given his French Canadian deal and they're doing it in new Orleans? I think that Rick Martel definitely belongs in the hall of fame. He's, he's an excellent guy, his contributions to the business, you know, his world title run in the AWA, but also everything that he did in the WWF, uh, Martel is hall of fame worthy and had a great career. When did you guys realize that this was a mistake to have this many tag teams in the ring at the same time? When the bell <laughs> rang, when the bell rang and we didn't have a shot. And we're looking all over the place and Kerwin is screaming at me, tell, tell so-and-so to move. And there, there just was no place to move with all this humanity. And, um, nobody thought about that beforehand. We got lots of questions about rock and Robin. I want everybody who's tweeted and Facebooked me about that to know. We're going to talk about it next week on our Jake, the snake Roberts episode. So, uh, because of her relationship with Jake, we will cover her more there because I think that's an interesting part of his story. So as I scroll through, there's lots of questions about her. I guess she was over. 
Rock and Robin was over, and it was a it was a departure from the old fabulous Moolah era of female wrestling that people were akin to. So you give them Sherry Martell now, and then you give them Rock and Robin. It was young. Robin wasn't hard to look at. Man, I saw Robin at uh, where did we see her? Didn't we just see her recently? I didn't see her. I thought you were with me. Uh, maybe it was at WrestleMania or one of those conventions and she looks tremendous today. I mean, she looks better today than she did then. Okay. Robin's a pretty girl. Very nice. I like, I didn't say she wasn't. I said, okay. Yeah. But you said it in a, in a way, Conrad in some type of way. And yeah, in that way. So I I do enjoy the concept here that when one member of the tag team is pinned, they're both out of here. It's at least a passable way. And I got to tell you, it's a little thing, but I really enjoy the old school wooden WWF steps. When do you guys remember having a conversation about switching those to those metal corner steps instead? There was a point where the, you remember the Federettes? Not really. Okay. Uh, may have been before you're born, but it was, the, they had the federettes, which were female, um, uh, jacket, jacket girls, for lack of a better term. Oh, I got you. Yeah. Okay. They used to come down and they, they were kind of like cheerleaders, but not really. And they used to take the, the ring jackets of the performers. I'm, I'm looking at them right now. They had on, uh, a blue top and then like yellow pants or something like that. Yeah. It, it, it depended. And they, they would go out and they would have a hard time with the wooden steps. So as time went on, um, I think it became an issue with Liz and her high heels. And then they were just such a pain in the ass and the steel steps just look so much neater, like clean. Oh, I found a picture of summer Rae in a Federette jacket. Roll tide. Roll tide. Is that all she's wearing? Uh, it's like a onesie. Don't get excited. Okay. Some of them looked really nice in the onesies. Well, yeah, these adult onesies. Yeah. Roll tight. You got to love it. You got to love it. But even the, you know, even then you look at who the workhorse is and look at, you know, who's left in the match and you got Brett, <laughs> you know, even then Brett was considered that workhorse and the guy that you could depend on at the end of the night. And just think, just uh, 10 short years from this, you guys would screw him. Yeah, exactly. Screw him. Hypothetically, if Pat Patterson could have screwed one of the boys here, it wouldn't have been Brett because Brett was one of his favorites. Who would Pat have wanted to screw in this match? I don't understand your question. Like, did Pat not like somebody, you know, like Vince had a falling out with Brett. And so he was going to have to screw him. Did like Pat have beef with Paul Roma? Would no. would Brett have? I mean, would Pat have wanted to screw Paul Roma? No. We just said everybody hated him. I didn't know. So Pat liked Paul Roma. Pat did like Paul Roma, and in the begin in the beginning, Vince liked Paul Roma too. And then Paul just when Paul started to get a little bit of a push, Paul became very full of himself. And so and, and get, so like how so? Give me an, give, give me an example. How so? just feeling that as soon as he got a little bit of a push, he felt that there needed to be more and you needed to be doing more with me. And, and why, you know, why do I have to lose this match? And why don't you do more? And, and my God, I look better than that guy. And it just was a constant, 
um, instead of let's but let's build you slowly. How come when Triple H does it, he becomes one of the owners of the company. When Paul Roma does it, he's an asshole. I don't know that Triple H did that at his point in his career. Same point in the career. Do you know that he did that at some point in the same point in his career? Busting your balls, Bruce. I'm just asking a question. No, I'm just busting your balls. What well, busting your balls back? But are you okay? And plus, plus, look at Roma's damn hairdo here. He's got a fro. How about how about Rocky Mavia's hair when he first got started? What did you think about Pineapple Willie about ten years oh, after this? God, the Chia Pet Head. Yeah, we we uh, we we actually did call him Chia Pet Head because it was pretty bad. Brett's hair is not the best here either. I was like, going to say, you know, count the fro's. Uh, Roma, Brett's got a bit of a fro going on here. Uh, Haku and Tonga and basically Brian Blair. Brian Blair is another one of those guys who has looked the same age forever. Little scary. And, and just, just did a, uh, Tampa reunion and wanted to know why he wasn't working at the show and Brian is 60 plus years old, still in great shape, but did point out to people that he was a nine time Florida state champion. So he's got that going for him. Let's cruise on over to Facebook. Check out some more questions. If you haven't already, I encourage you and I can't encourage you enough. In fact, uh, check out the video that Chris McDonald put together for this commercial. It's pretty fun. Uh, Scott Schrober wants to know, can Bruce sing a few bars of girls in cars, girls in cars, girls in cars. That's about the only thing that I remember from girls in cars other than doing the video. And, and that video was shot down in uh, San Diego on the beach in San Diego with uh, them. Joel Watts shot that. And uh, Robbie Dupree is the one who sang that. And Jimmy Hart wrote the, wrote the song, but it was, it was one of the best damn videos ever. Girls in cars, girls in cars. And you remember what you said earlier on about how like this pay-per-view doesn't hold up well. Yeah. I'm hurting right now, dude. This is the worst podcast we've ever done. And, uh, we did Austin this walks out taking forever. Yeah. This is what y'all had to do though. And so when I watched arcade 87, I'm like, man, this is fucking way better. Well, yeah. And we have what four matches, five matches here and putting this together and going, Oh my God. So when everybody talks about why wasn't this match longer, why wasn't that match on go back and watch this stuff and you'll understand why it's better to have short matches. Um, Here's a fun question from Brett White, who clearly read the question. Do you have a question about Survivor Series 87? He writes, who spray painted the Nation of Domination's locker room? Uh, that would have been Richie Posner. <laughs> yeah, thanks for listening. 1987, folks. Yes. Um, Mercado wants to know how much Coke was being used prior to every backstage promo for this event. I assume a lot of the guys liked a little bit of the fizzy drink before they got going, right? God, I couldn't imagine. 
a little scary. But you know what? I, I could imagine right now, if this were happening today, do you know what would be being screamed in the referee's ear right now? If this was if you if this was thirty years later, this was two thousand and seventeen, and we were watching what we're watching on the monitor right now, what would be the one thing that would be driving Vince McMahon absolutely banana, and we would be screaming at the referee? I'm not sure. Tuck your goddamn shirt in. Oh God, you're exactly right. You know, there, there, there are just so many, there are so many things that, that 30 years later wouldn't even, wouldn't even possibly happen. And, and after the fact it would, he would come back get a goddamn haircut and keep your shirt tucked in. I don't care how you do it. Sew it to your underwear, pal. Anything just to get this guy, the Slavic look of him. Good God. This is disgusting. And guys, uh, and. Tell Roma to stop leaning on the ropes. It's a little nitpicky things that as we grow, we learn and, and change as you get older. I don't think Slavic look means what you think it does. Well, that's what Vince used to say. What does it mean? Well, throw it in your Google machine, but it doesn't mean you don't tuck your shirt in. Um, what was a typical day like for Vince on a day like this? I mean, this is his second biggest pay-per-view ever. You know, it's the second one ever. It's a big deal. And, uh, it's a holiday. He's uneasy. He's got lots of money on the line. He's leveraged a lot of things with WrestleMania three. And now he's trying to sort of counter strike and make the most of an opportunity, but not give too much away, but we're still in the infancy of this production era that he's trying to push everything towards. What's his day. Like what's his demeanor like? At this time, you know, we would have a production meeting the night before. So we would get everybody together the, the night before as far as production people and everything at a hotel? we had. Usually at the hotel. We would go over the show uh, kind of loosely, but let everybody know what the hell was going on. Announcers, which is basically just uh, Jesse and uh, Gorilla. I'd fill in Gene and Craig after the fact, but Vince was producing those. So there wasn't that much you really had to fill in at that point. But then we would have a production meeting that day with the agents and they would kind of divvy up the matches. It, it wasn't even, you know, going back for this pay-per-view, I don't even think we assigned agents like they do today to the matches. It was after the fact, okay, who wants this match? And okay, this is what we're going to do. And the agents would then work with the talent to decide, you know, how everything's going to be laid out and come back to, to Vince and Pat, let them know. So Vince, you know, on the day of, it was just getting the job done. He's producing the interviews and, probably working with Hulk throughout the night, making sure that uh, Andre's happy and making sure that everything in the last match is exactly as he wants it. Monsoon said they've been in there a long time. Tell me about it. This thing is a damn long time. Textbook, please count to three. My God. Is that Dave Hebner on the outside of the ring? Uh, yeah, because Earl is uh, working Starcade 87 down the road. How crazy is that? Amazing. Hey. Well, for, for a minute, I, I was looking and I'm thinking, 
oh my God, Dave looked an awful lot like Earl. You know, Dave, as time went on, when he stopped refereeing, Dave got that you know, a little bit larger gut so that Heckle and Jekyll were a little bit easier to, to tell apart. But Dave's function on the outside of the ring here is to try and keep the time cues and try and keep everything moving as best that he can and let these guys know, okay, get the next one out. Let's go. Just keep it moving. And obviously, I don't think we ever did another tag team survivor series match. Did we? Yes, you did. Oh God. Why? Cause you guys are assholes and you don't care about us. Well, that part's true. Never did. Never cared. Hate everybody. It happened the very next year. Powers of pain, rockers, British bulldogs, heart foundation, and young stallions defeated demolition, brain busters, Bolsheviks, fabulous Rougeos, and the conquistadors. Hope that's not a spoiler. 29 years later. Damn. The conquistadors, number one and number two, you know, number two was such a nice guy. I hear number one was a real dick. Yeah. Number one was, he was an asshole all the time. You couldn't trust conquistador. Number one. And I think that the crowd at this point in time is sitting there going, God, please someone give them the cue. You promised us Hulk and Andre. What the hell is going on? You have Paul Roma and Jim Powers left in the ring with the Islanders. Which is how Rene Goulet pronounced the Islanders. The Islanders. Somebody tell the referee to tuck his fucking shirt in. When did you guys get to work on producing this for Coliseum Home Video? Uh, wow. That would go to, you know, after we would get back, all the tapes would then go to Coliseum video. They would get dubs of it. A guy by the name of Steve Hecht would take it and he would start editing it and he would try and do Coliseum exclusive, do some interviews and add some exclusive content. He would grab a vignette from somewhere and add it in. But, um, they would re-edit shit and tighten it up a whole lot to make their time time frame work out just right. Probably about a week or two after. So your finish here is a guy without a mask is in the ring, and he slides out to have a guy with a mask do a sunset flip to win the match. Um. Yeah. What a finish. So Jesse's going to protest that this wasn't fair because these guys have, uh, used the mask routine here to do the old switcheroo and it wasn't the legal man and it wasn't fair. And these, uh, baby faces are cheaters. Jesse has cheaters. Jesse has a point. Does he not? He does. But the, the, the worst part about it is the legal guy in the ring wasn't wearing a mask. And then the mask guy comes in and makes the pin. It just makes no sense <laughs> at all. At all. There's, there's nothing. Watch this. Okay. And you're, you're damn, I, oh, well, this isn't the finish, but, uh, that's why I don't do color commentary. It was absolutely just bass backwards. Absolutely. See, the guy doesn't have a mask on as a mask guy jumps in and does a sunset flip. 
Now the referee turns around. The last guy saw in the ring didn't have a mask on, but now a mask guy is pinning him. Would you have been mad if Triple H would have booked that as his finish? I wouldn't give a shit. You would have liked it. I thought so. Yeah, well, if only you would have beat him with a figure four. No, no, everybody knows nobody ever won a figure four. Now, this is to me Jack Briscoe did the highlight of Survivor Series eighty seven. Jesse says, I wonder how the million dollar man spends his Thanksgiving. And Gorilla doesn't know that's what he's throwing to. He starts to talk about something and Jesse just cuts him off and says, Well, let's find out. And then they cut to the video here. And these are a collection of the million dollar man vignettes, which we covered on our million dollar man episode. Chat us through these. This is kind of fun. We get to relive this. Whose car was this that he's sitting in here? This was a rented limousine that we had in Dallas, Texas. And these were the very first million dollar man vignettes that we, that we shot with Teddy going back. Um, so this was just simply, you know, uh, the first, the first of many that we shot. So this was just a rented one. This wasn't even Vince's personal limo at the time. And you always got to explain, I hated the fact that Ted wore his wedding ring whenever he did that. You know, back in the old days, wrestlers didn't wear wedding rings. Because it would, it would hurt the house. There you go. You got to draw the rats. That's what the, the, the Bill Watts and the uh, Jerry Jarrett's and all those guys in the South. You, you've told us before that Vince doesn't like watches to be visible a lot because in a pre-tape, then you can tell whether or not it's live. It gives a reference to the real time. What did he think about wearing wedding rings? He didn't like jewelry at all. So he, he never liked anybody to, to wear, didn't, didn't wear wedding rings. Didn't wear watches. Didn't like it. Chat me up about this kid doing pushups. Whose kid is this kid from the crowd? This is back, back when it was real, when we would actually just pick people right out of the crowd. Wait, that kid yeah. legit collapsed on nine. He couldn't do 10. Yeah. Come on, fuck off. Okay, I'm sorry. Um, it was your kid. No. Well, I mean, you I was. Blow, you, I, blow, I was you blow them up beforehand. <laughs> so, how'd you? Whose job was it to blow up the kids? And never mind. I had a good joke, but we won't go there. You ask him how many push-ups can you do? Okay, show me. Yeah, that's good. Can you do that again? They always say yes. Can you do that again? Of course. I think I was Liz to Fabio's kid. This is, uh, maybe the most iconic million dollar man skit of all time. Is it not asking the kid to dribble the real. basketball? Yes. And 100% real. This was the turning point for the million dollar man, because we realized that when Ted was going out and humiliating people and then paying them, they loved him. Cause all I got to do is go in and kiss his feet. Or uh, wipe sweat off of him or whatever. But I'm going to get money. I'm getting paid for it. And then the realization was, well, they love him. What if he doesn't give them the money? And then you just let the little kid go and whoops. Sorry, buddy. And what happens when you don't do the job, Conrad? You don't get the money. (laughs) Now, of course, you still gave his mom and dad the money. Yeah, we did, but they didn't know that. And they were pissed. Little kid was heartbroken and balling, like, balling like a baby afterwards. Wearing his Hulkamania shirt. Hey, so where's this shot? I've been curious about this shot. It looks like they're in like an office or a study. 
that shot right there is in Vince McMahon's den, private den in his home. So that chair that he's sitting in, Vince had two of those chairs and I was actually promised those damn chairs when he redecorated his office and Vince reneged. Who did he give them to? What did he do? I think he had a, he just had them reupholstered redone in blue all right lots of room and innuendo about this video who's barking here uh a makeup artist she a lot was, uh, a lot of people assume this is linda mcmahon oh my god no well here, here's what i know that that lady there she does not know how to throw it back at all no now you can just tell that arch in the back is way off hmm but she's got a long neck that she, do was very nice. yeah, she was, she was a makeup artist and you know what? I think this was actually shot in Cleveland, Ohio. And here, of course we have Vince's, um, uh, uh, dining room. That's actually, uh, Marie, um, his cook, his chef. And then the other guy, the man is a limo driver. And check this out. It's Rob Van Dam kissing his feet as a little boy. When did you find out that was Rob Van Dam? Not till many years later when Rob was working with us, but that is the dining room table that I sat at for many, 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 many years booking and writing TV. Did it have a tablecloth on it or just for this shoot? No, the tablecloth would go on after we left. And yes, they really did have a, have a bell. And, uh, yes, that really is. Vince's chef. Wait, wait, wait. Vince would sit at his dinner table and ring the fucking bell. I don't know if he did or not, but he had a bell. Uh, this, uh, this pool shot here. What city was this done in Dallas, Texas? And you look back on some of this stuff and you, you would have thought we would have got a nicer pool. No shit. Like if you're the million dollar man, you're swimming (laughs) in this rat hole. Hey, so tell me about this guy who's running the pool here. Who is he? 100% legit. The pool, the guy that ran the pool. He's the guy that ran the, the public pool, the neighborhood pool where we went and not an actor, nothing. Just we, here's what you do. All the early million dollar man vignettes, we used real people. And and there's that, no, there's no shoot. There's no permit for this. Y'all are just guerrilla style here, right? Here's my question. Did we just witness a payoff for real? <laughs> well, Maybe. Let's put it. Okay. I'll answer your first question. No, there was not a permit. Whose car is this that DiBiase is driving? Oh, that's Vince's. That's Clinet. That's what Vince drove every day. That was his everyday car. And that's Vince's uh, coat. The fur coat. Don't know that Vince ever wore it in public, but we knew he had it and it fit DiBiase. Help me understand. Did you ever see Vince like, Okay, I guess he said you, he you never saw him wear it, but it's just amazing for me to imagine Vince McMahon driving around in that jacket in that car. How fucking absurd that would look! Oh, he drove he drove around in that car with the top down in his three piece suit with the vest with lapels in it, and the car had a you know the honk was one of those silly little tunes. So that he would come down and he'd get in front and he would, you know, honk the horn at you and stuff. The ashtray was a crystal ashtray and, and you saw the side view mirrors is they're like crystal with etchings in them. 
Now, obviously, I've told stories about how Vince doesn't smoke and hates smoking. So one time, Vince had the Clinet parked at the studio, had the top down, and, and he was inside. So I thought it would be a hell of a rib to um, have somebody go put their cigarettes out in the ashtray in the Clinet. He swore he was livid, first of all. Absolutely livid. But he he swore that it was Pat Patterson that did it because he was only, you know, Pat smoked and Still he thought does. Pat was the only one that would do that. Right. So for the longest time, Pat got blamed for putting his cigarettes out in Vince's ashtray in his car. And I just used to kind of chuckle to myself. Did you ever admit to it? I just did. Well, before now, you never have. <laughs> Hell no. So Vince just found out 30 years later that you're the one who fucked up his car. I just fucked up the ashtray. Didn't, you know, I'm not fucking up the car, but it had one of those weird gear shifts that was like, you had to pull out and turn and all this other crap to get it into park and reverse and chat me up about what we're seeing here on pay-per-view. If I purchase this, I'm seeing two guys just sit and fucking talk to each other. And they're just filibustering. They're wasting time. What's going on here? It's not like you guys are setting up a cage. Are you trying to fill the pay-per-view time? Is Hogan trying to take a big dump in the back? What's going on? Reset, pal. Let's come back. Let's settle it down. Get them ready for the main event. You know, there were things that we did that were a holdover from even going back to when we used to have intermissions. And we used to have intermissions on the uh, WrestleMania. We would have long-ass intermissions because we were used to doing that for closed circuit. And all the events would have intermissions so you could sell merch. And that's what they did at the closed circuit sites. So when we started going to pay-per-view, we would have intermissions and we would run a lot of uh, interviews in that time. But we would also do a merchandise spot as well to try and sell, you know, merchandise spot for the pay-per-view itself and do mail order things. So you would fall into a pattern that, okay, you got to have it on camera. You got to reset with the announcers and it became, that was the way you did television. That's the way they did sports. That's how we did pay-per-views and you people aren't, you're not fighting people changing the channel here. So you're trying to entertain them. And it was an opportunity for the announcers to hopefully reset and get us back in. And also for people sitting at home to go out and get something to eat and chill out. How, uh, how would you describe Jesse Ventura's style of dress here? Snaky. <laughs> oh boy. You never knew what Jesse was going to wear. And it was a fight just to get Jesse to put on the, the damn survivor series shirt. Cause we wanted him to wear the survivor series shirt to sell merchandise. But Jesse, Jesse always, you know, he was Jesse, the body. So he was always controversial and always tried to dress appropriately, but he looked more like Jesse, the snake than he did Jesse, the body. But this was a time, you know, Jesse was, man, he was doing movies. He was a huge star. And I always, you know, used to love to see what kind of tuxedo gorilla would end up in. And my favorite was, do you remember the, the blue and the red paisley tuxedos he used to I wear? I do. I love those. 
I did too. And everybody used to think, you know, who wears that shit? And I always swore one day and I, I will find one and I will get one, but I always, I always loved the, the red and blue Paisley tuxedos that Gino wore. Um, Robert Graham makes something just like that right now. Like the one he's the one that grill is wearing now, or like the Paisley, the Paisley crazy. Ooh, I got to get that. Yeah. Go check it out. It's about 600 bucks, but it's out there. Well, be a nice Christmas gift anyway. And gorilla, you know, was the first, first and only person I ever knew that wore colored glasses all the time. Besides, had, besides, uh, John Lennon. Yeah. But le- did Lennon wear different colors every day? Oh, I didn't realize Gino wore a different color every day. Oh, he had blue. He had purple. He had red. He had pink and he had yellow. And he'd switch it up every single day. So how about the, uh, the old entrance here, just kind of from the side vomitorium. And, uh, I learned a new word and so did Corey Graves, roll tide. And we've got a little interview platform here with the George. This is just to sell gimmicks again. This is just to buy time. This is again, time for people at home to go to the bathroom reset and yes, kill time. Also in the audience. Here live in the arena, when we go to the reset with Gorilla and Jesse, they kind of took that as their cue. They can go get popcorn, they can go to the bathroom and, and chill out. So for the people on pay-per-view that are watching this all the way through, we're still trying to entertain them, still trying to give them programming. And by God, send the honky-tonk man back out there, let him talk a little while. Greatest Intercontinental Champion of all time, bar none. When, when does the uh, conversation start with him about dropping the intercontinental title to macho man. Probably not until January, February, probably January. It's just interesting that a few months after this, everything changes, you know, the rumor and innuendo is it's going to be butch Reed and you know, it's, it's not going to be Ricky steamboat and. So there's a steamboat and a butch reed and a macho man and a honky tonk man, smorgasbord. Then on the other side, there's the million dollar man getting the big push and everything sort of gets turned upside down. Macho man gets the nod. The million dollar belt is invented. The mega powers explode. Steamboat goes down south, has a series of unbelievable five star. Get off that shot. Empty seats, empty seats, empty seats. What you doing? Vince is probably what he's screaming at this point. You know, you go back and remember how we used to do that shit about the Cytex the thing. Yeah. If he had seen that shot, he's screaming. Absolutely going fucking nuts. Just a handful of empty shots or empty seats is enough to drive him over the wall. Yes. And, 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 and the fact these kind of shots here where they're just sitting on things. And this is a, clearly a mistake of nobody having any control of, of the camera, but yes, he would go bananas because Kerwin was sitting on the shot. Television is movement. Damn it. You don't just sit on a shot. You give me movement. So here we go. Uh, quite a formidable team here on the way to the ring. What a group. Bobby Heenan, Ravishing Rick Rude, King Kong Bundy, who a lot of people sleep on, but you got to remember the year prior, he's on top working with Hulk Hogan in the main event of WrestleMania. 
and used to shave his eyebrows. Vince looked at him and says, Chris, I'd like for you to shave your eyebrows. He said, why? He said, cause you'll look more menacing. And that became, and if you look at, at uh, King Kong Bundy before he came to the WWF and then after he came to the WWF, Vince shaved his eyebrows and Chris pretty much kept that look. I don't know that I would have noticed that. It's a subtle difference, but it made a big difference when you look at him because he's really got a really kind, nice face. So here they come with their manager, the doctor of style slick. We've got, uh, Butch Reed, the natural and one man gang. Maybe my doppelganger. Would you, would you consider, uh, cutting your hair like that and doing the Mohawk and the, in the beard, like one man gang. So we could also, you could not just be Akeem, the Alabama dream. You could also be the one man Conrad, one man podcaster. Yeah. One man pod gang. I like it. Yeah, I'll do it with those sunglasses. You know, the I'm not going to big... say when I'm going to do it, but at a live show, if we ever book any for 2018, then yes, I'll do one. Okay. Okay. I like, will you do the, the, the tattoo on the side of the head? No, no, I'll do it the same day. You uh, dress up like brother love and get the red tattooed on your fucking face. Well, I never had the red tattooed on my face. He's well, got a nice little skull tattoo on his head. Yeah. The, I, I never, I never did a Mohawk or a tattoo on my head. I was just me. I was fat and doing mortgages and talking about wrestling to strangers on the internet. What the hell? So here comes the largest athlete in the world. The eighth wonder of the world. The unfound heavyweight champion and the next heavyweight champion of the world, Andre the Giant. Maybe I take shit. I like turkey. Nice uh, move there to cut away from him, sort of struggling to get in the ring. It was smart to cut away. This is before um, Rick Root is going to the airbrush tights, doing some printed tights here. But they made mention of the fact that there's two tons of mass on this side of the ring counting all these guys. And then of course we've got Hulk Hogan coming up next, but first I think we're going to be treated to a Hulk Hogan promo. And one of the most, uh, famous things about this entire thing is Hogan's bandana and the way he has it fashioned here. Did Hulk do this himself or did he have some creative inspiration? No, Hulkster used to spend time trying to, there was a time when Hulk actually used to cut his own t-shirts too, but yes, Hulk would sit there and cut his own bandanas and, and come up with something different. And it's just a, another Hulkism, if you will. Somewhere Zach Ryder is really pleased with his, uh, t-shirt cutting skills here. Gotta love it. <laughs> you gotta love it. And you know, the, this belt uh, you know, you talk about your favorite, your favorite is the winged eagle, the winged eagle, the one that replaced this. This is commonly referred to as the Hogan 86 or the Hogan 87. They were slightly different, but not much. Well, this one was my favorite. This one of the, of the WWF championships, this one was my favorite and it didn't last that long, but I always thought it was the best because it, it looked different than other belts. And I, I just always thought that it was, it was the best. And, and looking at these guys now, you know, um, no, nah, the bandana was just something I, I, everybody wanted to know what was the deal with the bandana. It was just Hulk being different. You know, it's no different than Hulk doing the, the gas can. 
How great is it Hogan doing promos with his back to the camera here? This is clearly before everybody was so OCD about the production aspect of this. Well, for Vince, let me see that big back, that big broad son of a bitch. You'll eclipse everybody else out. And if Hulk did it, it was okay. Yeah. (laughs) Look at how fucking goofy Orndorff is. One of the best heels in the world trying to be a white meat baby face in the back. I never understood the pairing. You know, these guys had a great feud together, Orndorff and Hogan, and now they're back together. Did that make sense to you in hindsight? Paul Orndorff as a baby face is weird. Didn't make sense to me because he was such a great heel. I feel like we should mention, do you want to guess how old Bam Bam Bigelow is here? I I mean, this twenties. Yeah. It blows a lot of people's mind when you think about how old he is here. Take a guess. I'm going to say 25, 26. He had just turned 26 years old. Yeah. And he's on top of a WWF pay-per-view teaming with Hulk Hogan in the main event. It's a big deal. With Don Morocco wearing a blue sweatshirt. Now we should, we should mention Don Morocco here is a last minute replacement of sorts. Originally all the early promo photos and advertisement featured superstar Billy Graham. And it was a big deal that you would have a big star from the seventies tagging with a big star from the eighties, superstar Billy Graham on the same team with Hulk Hogan. But then a few weeks prior to the event, superstar would write that he got a call from Vince saying, you're not up to the task. And allegedly superstar admitted he knew he wasn't. So he was replaced by Morocco. How'd you feel about that replacement? And do you remember there being any conversations about it? There were a lot of conversations about it. Um, leading, leading up to this whole thing, we had done vignettes with superstar and prior to the vignettes, even Vince had been talking to superstar, but hadn't seen him and superstar led Vince to believe that he looked like he looked in 1977. So, um, well, we'll go here to, to Hulk's intro because monsoon just said they've gone banana he said bananas but still and uh this was vintage this was vintage hogan and i gotta tell you man of anybody at any time uh save austin that would get that electric pop there was nothing like a hulk hogan entrance in 1987 the the entrance with the crazy bandana him just putting on a show as soon as he comes through the curtain pointing to the crowd, talking out loud, got the crazy bandana, tearing the shirt off, carrying the flag to the ring, pointing, I mean, doing the ear cup deal. He's got all the mannerisms that I identify with professional wrestling in the eighties. I mean, just at, it was, it was on fire. And I used to love to be able to go outside right before Hogan's entrance because it was electric. Unlike anything I had ever heard you know, uh, up until that point, probably the closest thing back in the day was rock and roll express in a, uh, arena full of 16 year old girls. But Hogan, man, at this time was the hottest thing in wrestling and nothing else compared to the reaction he got when he came through the curtain. You know, and what's interesting to me is it feels like there's so many little things that really add to it because obviously it was going to work to some degree just because of who Hogan is. But it's when you add tearing the t-shirt, you add the American flag, 
you add the pointing to the crowd, you add the music. I don't think the music gets enough credit because the music really set the tone and really completed the package. Did it not? Rick Derringer wailing on the guitar, man. How can you get any better than that? And Hogan had more hair than too as well, but his electricity, man, the finger, the dancing, everything meant something. He didn't waste anything out in that ring, man. And all eyes were on Hulk all the time. And he made use of it. Uh, just electric back in the day. And these people, the first time we had built this thing up, this is the first time Hogan and Andre one-on-one face-to-face since that epic battle at WrestleMania. So they wanted it, man. And, and, you're, and you're building to it. And it was, it was electric. But I'll go back and finish the Superstar Billy Graham story. Before Superstar came in, he had convinced Vince that he had been working out and his arms were like uh, 24 inches and that they were, he was in shape. He was in better shape than he was in in 1977. Now, Vince hadn't seen him. He knew he had his hip replaced. He knew that he was going through a lot of different things. And Joel Watts goes out to shoot these vignettes with him and called Vince and says, man, um, I don't know what superstar looked like in 1977, but if he looked like this in 1977, he looked like shit. And we delayed it. And Vince talked to superstar and said, you know, Billy, you know, you really got to get in shape. Um, uh, we can't have you out there. I, I superstar Billy Graham doesn't have a gut. We did the whole, the whole angle with Butch Reed and, and superstar. And I remember Butch Reed never looked better than when he was in, in the angle with superstar Billy Graham, because Butch trained cause he knew he looked better than superstar and he wanted to look better than superstar. But Billy came back grossly out of shape, not ready to go. And you had to make a decision. We didn't want to have him embarrass himself here, but Hogan man in the ring with rude and well, a few times and only times these guys ever touched. And it's a shame because I think it would have done big money. Yeah. Except for, you know, the occasional Royal rumble situation or here, or I know there's a match from Boston gardens on a DVD somewhere. They just didn't do a lot of business together for whatever reason. And and we haven't talked a lot about, uh, bam, bam, Bigelow. So we should mention bam, bam, Bigelow a lot here. And here comes another competitor in Ken Patera. Ken Patera had been all over the news and, and had just come back to the company recently, having done a stint in prison. And, uh, I know we've talked about it a little bit here or there. I know you weren't there at the time, but what was the rap on Ken's prison situation? Ken had been working. The crazy thing about it is, is Ken had been working for Vern at the time. And he had the incident in, in a McDonald's where Ken Patera and another wrestler, uh, Masaya Saito threw a rock through a McDonald's because they were closed and they wanted to eat. So the McDonald's people called, they described these two big men, cops came to investigate and Patera and Saito proceeded to beat the hell out of, uh, seven or eight cops went to prison while Ken was in prison. Vince continued to send checks and Ken wasn't even working for Vince at the time, but nobody was taking care of Ken's family and, and Vince sent, checks to Ken's family every week, made sure that they had money and told Ken when he got out of prison, he had a place to come. So this was Ken coming out of prison and right back in the fold. And Vince was a big fan of Ken Patera and put him right back on top. 
already the natural out of this thing, man, because you look at how we had it all laid out. It was going to be Butch Reed and superstar Billy Graham. Well, you don't have superstar anymore. Move on. And also during this time, the, the sad part here, you look at Paul Orndorff and you can already see Orndorff's arms starting to give a little bit. And the definition in his one arm and his right arm, not the same as the left. And he was already having those nerve problems, which is just kind of sad. Yeah. It's, uh, it's one of those deals where he had to make a call based on him being on top with Hulk Hogan. It feels like a once in a lifetime opportunity for him to make the most money he's made in his career. And this is very much a business where timing is everything. And if you're not in the right place at the right time, or the company loses confidence in you or doesn't think they can push you, then you'll lose your spot. And it won't just be waiting on you to pick up where you left off more often than not. So he elects not to have the surgery and still dealt with those effects. I mean, to this day, I guess. Yep. And on all these guys here in this match, the one guy, the, the, the next big star was going to be Bam Bam Bigelow. And that never that really good. happened. No. Why do you think that was? Um, I think Bam Bam was always missing that it factor. He had everything else. Uh, he was probably one of the most agile, best working big men in the business, but there Bruce, was just a disconnect. That's really hard for me to wrap my head around. He's a fucking giant with flames all over his body and tattooed yeah. on his head. He's missing a tooth and he can do a cartwheel at 450 pounds. And you're hitting me with, he didn't have it. He didn't. He couldn't connect with the audience. He couldn't connect on that next level. Uh, his stuff in the ring. Amazing. Here's what I'm asking. Here's we, what I'm asking. If King Kong Bundy was afforded the opportunity to main event a WrestleMania against Hulk Hogan, why wouldn't Bam Bam have been given a similar opportunity in my head? No disrespect to Bundy, but Bam Bam would have done better in that spot than Bundy. Would he not? Bam Bam did headline a WrestleMania with Lawrence Taylor. My and, God. I mean, but Bam, my point is Bam Bam did have that opportunity, but it never, it, it just never clicked to be able to be sustained. And he just, he was great and a great guy on, on top of it. I, I loved Bam Bam Bigelow, but it just was something missing there. What did Vince think of Bam Bam? It feels like Vince may not have liked Bam Bam. Do I have that read right? No, like the hell out of him. And that's why he always wanted to try something with him. He was always fighting here, especially at this point in Bam Bam's career, his, the negative rap on him. He had no promo skills at all. He was very kind of shy in a lot of respects. Couldn't really cut a promo. He always had Larry Sharp speaking for him prior to coming here. And so when they came in, Vince saw him as a baby face, just looked at him and, and Scott Bigelow, the human being, this really super nice guy, Vince saw as a baby face. So he wanted to bring him in as a baby face. So what do you do? You take a, a, a heel manager. He's <laughs> been a heel manager his whole life in Oliver Humperdinck. And hump was looking for a job at the time. He said, I'll put him with hump. Hump can talk and we'll make him colorful. The package didn't work. Just didn't work. But even at the, at this point, you know, the, I think Ken Patera at this point, you know, the best years it had passed Kenny by and, you know, Ken is trying to work. He grew up lifting weights, uh, unbelievable weightlifter, and he was a hell of an amateur, 
but trained by Vern Gagne, it was a different style. And I think that the business had, had kind of slipped by Ken at this point in his career. But the gang, you'd be a good gang. You look like a good gang. Well, I wouldn't want to be a bad no. gang. No, no. I want to, I want to help people save money. That's my gang. Well, they can do that. No, no, no. We're not doing no, commercials don't. We're not doing that, right? We're not doing commercials. Okay. We're not doing commercials. It's Thanksgiving. But here, gang, you know what? Gang was still, still fresh in the company too, at this point. And the gang had had in house shows. He was going around with Hogan. They were doing decent business at the time, but that was at a point too, that you could do Hogan with pretty much any heel, especially a big monster heel. And it was going to draw. I think that gang is somebody that could have done a whole hell of a lot more than he did in the WWF in his first run. Yeah. It's interesting because you got to wonder if Andre, the giant wasn't there and I know they're different, totally different, but if Andre, the giant's not there, one man gang could have been like one of the go-to rivals for Hulk Hogan, but here he just feels like a much smaller version of Andre. And unfortunately that that's the case when you're in the land of the giants. Yeah. Because you're same thing with hacksaw Jim Duggan later on, you know, he was a big guy, but in the land of the giants, he almost became normal and here are the gang. Jesus, the gang's six, six, eight, six, nine. Yeah. He's a big man. So chat me up about Ken Patera somewhere on commentary here. I think Jesse Ventura referred to him as jailbird. And you guys had sort of embraced his prison stint and tried to pitch this as a redemption story. Did you just feel like too many fans knew about that to avoid it? Was there any heat on, on uh, Ventura calling him a jailbird? No, that was part of the storyline. And we had done all the vignettes with Ken coming out of prison. And it was a redemption story to try and tell people that, Hey, he made a mistake. He's coming back. And his life has changed in the fact that Bobby Heenan, who had been his manager before, had turned his back on him and that, that well, not really Bobby turning his back, but Ken turning his back on Bobby Heenan and not wanting to go the heel route anymore. So it was, it was a redemption story and trying to make a positive out of a negative. It's and Paul Orndorff and Rick Rue, good God. Two of the best of all time. Uh, uh, you go back and you look at the programs. If you go back into, uh, let's, let's call it 1985, and if both guys were in their prime, that could have headlined WrestleMania easily. Mm. Uh, I think so. I, I think that both guys in their prime could have been a headline for WrestleMania because against Rude Hogan was, against Hogan. Sure. Not against each other. I don't know. I think which that, one would have been the baby face. Then these guys suck as baby faces. Just a minute yeah, ago. You said he was awful as a baby face. You inconsistent I motherfucker. I know, but still them here in this role. Hypothetically, every person in this match should be in the hall of fame. Agree. Um, who is it? Would you say butch Reed? Would you say Don Morocco Would you say those guys don't belong? Morocco? No, I say they do. I said, who isn't? Well, several. Bam Bam? Yeah, Bam Bam's not in. I don't think one man gang's in. Uh, is Patera in? I don't think so, but I think every single person in here deserves to be in, including Joey Morella. 
I'll even give Humperdinck a Hall of Fame nod. Uh, we should mention, I don't know that everybody listening knows this. Joey Morello, the referee in the ring right here. Uh, who is his dad? Uh, Gorilla Monsoon is his dad. And ultimately, Joey passed away from a car wreck. I'm freestyling. Was this 92 or 93? It was 4th of July weekend, 93. And they hit some sort of animal or something like that? Um, Or am I thinking of Adrian Adonis and no, I'm mixing that up? No, no. Yeah. Um, I think, uh, I think Bruno just fell asleep and, and ran off the road, just long trip, long weekend and coming back into New Jersey. And, uh, I think he just fell asleep. I, I really don't, you know, just horrible, just a horrible, horrible situation. And I remember getting home, Shane McMahon calling me about, we got home about, 4:30 in the morning and Shane calling me about eight o'clock in the morning and giving me the news. Understandably, but how tore up was gorilla? He was never the same. Uh, mm. Gino was, became a completely different man and he carried it for the longest time. It was, it was tough. It was tough on all of us because it just, it brings to life the dangers of the road every day and, and all the travels that we do every single night. And it just that reality when it slaps you in the face and realize that, you know, nobody was drinking there. It was, it was an accident. That's all it was. And that's the reality of the road. Well, I wasn't the ultimate warrior on this card. I know you guys did a real video treatment for the million dollar man. So he got the star treatment either way, but why no warrior warrior wasn't even on the full roster at this point. Warrior was on the sea towns. At one uh, point, JYD was advertised on Macho Man's team, but then it was changed to uh, Ricky Steamboat. Do you remember why? I don't remember what happened with uh, Junkyard Dog. I saw that as well, and I, I went back, and I was actually looking through Jim Barnett's book to see if there was anything in there that would give me any indication, and I I don't remember what the hell happened with Dog. Uh, I, I definitely... What the hell? You just asked me a question. I just went blank. I just had a senior moment. Well, you've had several. I asked why JYD was replaced on Macho Man's JYD? team. It was JYD and he was replaced by Ricky Steamboat. Okay. Uh, I don't know. I'm sorry. I had a senior moment there, Conrad. You, I just got you, on the air. Are you okay? I'm great. Take your, take your pills. Wow. It's not time yet. That's close. I think you're maybe past two. It's close enough. I know. Okay. Hey, where did, um, all the, uh, the WWF wrestlers get their, uh, baby oil. Oh, baby oil on us. And that, you know, there's another one for you back in the day. And it's funny, these guys that come up today and they expect to see a table with baby oil and hair conditioner and mirrors and brushes and combs and, uh, every accoutrement that you could possibly imagine to put on your body or your hair before you go out to the ring. And back in the day you had your own damn baby oil that you carried in your bag. And if you didn't have it tough shit, you didn't get any baby oil. So no, uh, there was no, no one place. We didn't have makeup at the time for a big pay-per-view or TV. They would bring in makeup for the announcers and that was it. But guys didn't, guys weren't allowed to go into makeup and get their hair done or anything like that. Yeah. I don't think King Kong Bundy was spending much time in the makeup chair. No, but Andre would have, had it been available, 
I need nose hair clip. Um, Ric Flair was told, uh, as a youngster in the business that Andre had two rows of teeth. Did you ever hear any other weird rumors about Andre before you ever met him? There's lots of legends about Andre out there. Oh, he could drink 10 cases of wine and he tipped a car over with one hand and blah, blah, blah. All true. And the, the best one was that Andre had more teeth than a killer whale. All Vince McMahonisms. And I'm talking about Vince, the old man. So Vince senior would just make up shit and it became wrestling legend. Exactly. And when you would send out because Vince uh, booked Andre and Andre was booked out of the New York booking office. So whenever Vince would send out publicity and they would call the New York booking office for interviews and things. So the, the stories would come from the booking office. Andre, the giant, you know, seven foot four, five, 425 pounds. That was the build weight back in the day. And they would come up with all these different stories about Andre to make it, make that legend even bigger. But whenever Andre came in, like in Houston, Paul didn't like uh, alcohol, didn't like beer in the dressing room. Andre came in, he traveled with Frank Valois, who was French Canadian, uh, that traveled with him and handled all of his travel arrangements and Bronco Lubitsch, uh, in the Texas territory. And they would always walk in with a humongous, the biggest ice chest that you could get full of Budweiser and Andre drank from the moment he got there until the moment he left. Oh, here's the hot tag brother. Give us a Vince McMahon call of what's going on here. God damn it. The hulkster. Look at him. He's hulking up. Oh my God. Two, oh my, right there. He's got the giant, really. He's got, oh, oh my. Oh, he blocked it. He blocked it. Hogan's got him by the throat. What a vicious shot. He's not going to bring the Hulkster down. Trading blows. Oh my, Hogan with a vicious right hand. Get out of the way, referee. Into the corner post. I don't know how the hell he sustains that shit. This was great shit, man. This, this was what everybody, this is what we had built to this entire time. This confrontation right here, the rematch from WrestleMania, by God, oh my elbow, oh my God, hold it off the ropes. What the, hey, hey, somebody get Bundy. He's not involved in this. And here we go, folks, with the absolute worst finish in one of the worst finishes in wrestling history. How about one man gang taking a body slam on the concrete? You gotta love it. You gotta love it. And you know, and Bundy coming out here, neither one involved referee doesn't break the count. Andre's still in the ring and Bundy. What a slam from Bundy getting up there for Hogan. Now Hogan has just been counted out. Hogan trying to get back in the ring. And do you hear that? Can you hear that? How about the crowd? Yes. Can you hear it? It's that's folks is what you call a fart in church. We promoted this, this confrontation, this match, basically all around Hogan and Andre and Hulk gets counted out fighting two guys that aren't in the match. And we go from there and Andre just manhandles, uh, poor Bam Bam. And absolutely destroys him. But it was the entire, all the air in the arena 
has exited. It's, it's, it's completely gone, and nobody gives a flying fuck from this point forward. Was this one of the worst booking decisions in your time in the company that you saw Vince make? This was, this was the first argument I ever had with Vince McMahon. Tell us and about it. I, we're going, we're going over everything and I just was like a count out. Why can't Andre beat him? You know, Hulk, Hulk got the one, two, three at WrestleMania. If, if you got everybody else involved, use Bundy. Okay. Um, use gang. But beat, beat Hogan. Let Andre pin him. He's a giant. He's, we're going to the match in February. Can't beat Hulk. God damn. You can't take that away from him. And he was just adamant that you couldn't pin Hulk. Now, maybe at that time, you know, he had that finish in his head of the pin in February to me, old fashioned, just wrestling logic and old, old school wrestling is, is here. You have an, it's a non-title match. He's the champion. The biggest foe in the book is Andre, the giant just through the largest gate in the business, beat him, beat him one, two, three in the middle. Oh, damn. We're going to get Bigelow over here too, pal, but he's going to beat Bigelow. Bigelow's not Hulk. And so we had that big argument about just the count out in general and making Bam Bam, you know, let Bam Bam think that Bam Bam is going to make a big, big comeback here. And then we get to the famous, um, Hogan must pose. I mean, you could have told the story where Bam Bam manages to get over these other guys, but Andre is too much for him. They cut the you know, Andre's not letting him make the tag but he's beaten bam, bam to an inch of his life. And then all of a sudden he makes the tag. Hogan comes in, does what he does. And bam, bam's done most of the heavy lifting, but he couldn't quite topple the big boss to use an old Nintendo game reference. So Hogan cleans up and now they raise each other's hands and Bigelow's made. Wasn't where we were going. The story was Hogan Andre. The story was to get to February, the confrontation between the one-on-one for the championship this time. Hogan beat him once. If Andre had beat Hogan here, you now know Andre can beat Hogan. He did it. And all you show is Andre pinning Hogan. One, two, three. For two months leading up to the main event. That was the match. And then... When Andre does it again, you get to another rubber match at WrestleMania where finally they have the, the big confrontation. Hogan gets his win back. All's right with the world. But here we didn't build, we didn't build Bam Bam. We didn't build Hulk and Andre. And at the end, we completely shit over, you know, Andre being the sole survivor. You know, Bam Bam's doing a good job here. Bam Bam's, you know, fighting off everybody, but he's out of gas. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't look like a star here laying on his ass and just trying to fight up. They should have gone home right after Hogan. But again, if I, if I were booking it, I would have had Bam Bam been eliminated by all these guys, unsurmountable odds. Uh, Hogan come in and same thing unsurmountable odds to where finally Andre pins him one, two, three. 
Obviously not what we did. Instead, we had Gang miss a horrible splash and had Bam Bam lay an arm over him for a pin. I, I just didn't see where this was getting anybody. And in Vince's, and in Vince's mind, it, it was all about you know Andre being the sole survivor and beating everybody. The only guy that Andre beats is Bigelow. And he does beat the shit out of him here. Bigelow does look blown to fucking sky high here. He's completely out of gas. And that pisses Andre off too, because Andre needs people to, to move for him. <laughs> Cause Andre, <laughs> Andre's not going to do much more than he has to. And now he's really pissed. I come get you. But yeah, Scott, Scott's blown and, he, and he's sucking wind here and Andre's pissed off. So it just, your, your big confrontation, people weren't, were not expecting, nor did they pay for, uh, Bam Bam Bigelow and Andre the Giant. And I think they, they're disappointed at this point. So in, instead of going with the heat and this just finished, I just thought it was terrible. It's over. But isn't this where sending them home happy comes from? Hogan must pose. So Andre has just defeated everybody fair and square. And Hogan comes out with a weapon and nails Andre twice in the head with a weapon. Cheating. Well, he's a sore loser. He got beat. He yeah. got it. He's out. He's gone. He's a sore loser. Everything Jesse says is true. He's a sore loser. He comes back out. He hits Andre in the head with a, with a championship belt. Then his music plays and he poses. What the hell does he have to pose about? What's he got to be happy about? Is this, um, is this the first time you and Vince had the conversation? Hogan must pose. This is the, exactly where it came from. Hogan must pose, pal. Leave them happy. They leave on and up. People don't, people don't want to go out upset. I don't want them pissed off and they don't want to buy the next show. Yes, they do. If they think that their hero is going to overcome the injustice that he suffered the last time I saw him. It, it, it just basic psychology. It was that babyface territory of New York where they always had a babyface champion. And even when the babyface lost, the babyface had to look good on the end. It's kind of interesting that Hogan starts the show here coming in, carrying an American flag and then runs back out as a sore loser. Yeah. With a weapon. <clears throat> Cleans the ring. Clears the ring. Now he lost. Now here, here's your loser. Now he's going to get back here. He's going to get a smile on his face. He's going to start dancing and posing because Hogan must pose. And I just, psychologically, I just, I didn't get it. And that's where I, you know, started trying to learn the other way and go, okay, you know, we're in a completely different business. I was in the heat business. I was in the wrestling business before. And this was all about entertainment and the spectacle. Now let's break down what you just said, because a lot of wrestling fans who listen to our show will know exactly what you mean. You were in the heat business where 
you have a baby face chasing a heel and your heel is your top guy. And you're trying to see if our hero can topple the evil giant. Can our hero overcome? Can our hero do away with evil? And New York, you've often said, was a babyface territory where Vince has a different take on things. Explain that version. Vince always felt that the audience needed someone to believe in and they needed someone to root for. So you created monsters to go after the championship and go after the hero that needed the audience to carry them through and they needed their hero to win. They wanted, they had to leave happy. Um, I, I always grew up where you, you had that heel champion you had strong baby faces, but the baby face didn't win until the end. When you stack the deck against them and, and it looks like all, all odds are against them and they win that one. But up until then you beat the hell out of them. You cheat, you bloody them up. You do every dastardly evil thing that you can do until finally, you know, they get that evened up and the baby face is going to become triumphant. Here, the baby face always had to be standing at the end of it. And look at the audience. They're not leaving. You know, they're still, they're still there. The kids are going crazy because it's Hulk in the ring and he's doing, that's what, you know, we paid for was Hulk posing at the end. But for the, the, the television audience, you get this. How iconic is this man? Andre, the giant, Bobby, the brain, Heen, and mean Gene Okerlund. I think this is most everyone listening's childhood right here. <laughs> the, the greatest manager in the world, the greatest interview in the world and the only true giant. And that, that personified in, in the eighties to me, that's if you ask somebody what professional wrestling was, that's it right there. And Andre, you know, talking about the, the whole thing, soul survivor. Not very soul survivor. Uh, I like take big shit. Bam, bam, big little neck. I fuck everybody. I'm smarter than you. I'm soul survivor, Bobby. Get the line. And that was Andre's gimmick. But what did we end on? Hogan must pose. And if you go back and you look at all of the Hogan posing shots and all of his um, vignettes, great majority of them are from right there. Oh, real Coliseum. Hmm. Well, I know there's the one from the rumble where there's the sheet in the crowd that says Hulkamania will live forever or whatever. Um, But yeah, you can identify some of those. This was such a great show to relive, not only because it's timely, because we're upon the 30 year anniversary, uh, but because there's so much nostalgia and seeing a show with, you know, Jesse, the body Ventura gorilla monsoon, and these legends we grew up on, you know, you guys finished all your pay-per-views with a video montage at the end. And we're going to get more of that here, but just look at this iconic lineup, honky tonk, man, hacksaw, Jimmy Hart, Jake, the snake Roberts. I mean, the hits just keep on coming. Hercules Hernandez, Macho Man. Um, we're going to see most of these guys featured in an episode for us sometime soon. I hope we get to do Sensational Sherry. We're going to see more about Rock and Robin soon. 
I learned way more about the jumping bomb angels today than I thought I might. And, um, it's kind of funny to see that some of these video stills sort of repeat themselves, uh, because this is early era of the pay-per-view and my favorite part of the show is still you singing the Russian national anthem. Yeah, I'm, I'm fluent in Russian national anthems. And you know how we did this was throughout the night. All this is, is still grabs in the truck. Sure. And there was one guy, there was one guy in the trunk that would just go, you know, grab stills. And then at the end of the night, he would go back and pick, pick whatever stills that he had, but we didn't have any new music for it or anything. That's still just Hulk's music playing in the background from the crowd. We even have Jesse and, uh, um, gorillas microphones still open. So you're getting that crowd ambiance in there. Just God. It's amazing how far that they've come in 30 years, but it's amazing how far that, that we had come in even three years. Well, it was a great time reliving your brand new Thanksgiving tradition here on uh, whwmonday.com earlier today with Tony Schiavone for Starcade 87. And now here, your main event, Starcade 87. Uh, followed by Survivor Series 87. What a doubleheader. It was a doubleheader for me today. Hopefully it was a doubleheader for you. If you haven't checked out the other show, go check it out right now. It's whwmonday.com. Compared to what the WWF was up against this night, check out Starcade 87. And uh, we're going to do this next year. This is going to be our new thing here. Every Thanksgiving, you're going to be able to check out a Starcade and a Survivor Series uh, next year on Tony's show, we're going to cover probably Starcade 86. We're going to go backwards. Well, we can't go backwards for the Survivor Series, so we're going to go forward. Starcade 86 was a much different show than 87, but Survivor Series 88 wasn't all that different from 87. What do you think we might cover that's a little different for Survivor Series 88? You know, it was still an experimental time, and it was... Feeling the feeling was, this is what we did for Survivor Series. This is what Survivor Series is going to be going forward, and there hadn't yet been that. Let's do something different. Let's feature uh, one guy. Survivor Series was still going to be looked at as you get all of your issues and angles. You get everybody on the card. Let's get through it. We make it different and we move forward. Um, so it, you know. Different folks, different faces, different things. Let's play a little um, word association. I don't know when we'll talk about some of these guys again. So I want to get as much of our shit in as we can before we send everybody home happy with guys that we haven't spent a lot of time talking about here on the show. And I don't know that we'll ever get to spend a lot of time on in the future. Anything else you can add about dangerous Danny Davis? I think we pretty much covered it. You know, Danny, Danny was that long t- time ring crew guy. He was a friend of Vince McMahon's and he was somebody that just was a heel in real life. Um, and what I mean by that is he was a funny, smart ass, but he was getting heat on the road and they saw it capitalized on it by making him a heel referee and capitalized on that by having him be somebody, a character they can beat up in the ring. Outlaw Ron Bass. Got any Ron Bass stories you can share with us? Ron Bass is responsible for uh, me having to redo more Brother Loves, more one Brother Love shows than I've ever done in my life. And I believe we had to do four different versions of a Brother Love show one night without Ron Bass because he was absolutely tongue-tied 
trying to talk about your favorite wrestler, Brutus the fucking Barber Beefcake. And by the end of the night, Vince just looked at me and told me, you go out and cut the promo for him, goddammit. And Vince just lost all, all hope for Ron at that point. I'm sure we'll talk about Rick Martel and Tito Santana in the future, but I'm not so sure about the killer bees. You got any good killer bees stories you could share with us? The killer bees were kind of on their way out by the time that I was coming in and Brian Blair and, uh, Jim Brunzel were both, you know, pretty much good journeyman wrestlers throughout their career. But Vince saw them. They kind of had the similar build and the similar look. And I think that the bees did as much as you possibly can with a gimmick where your gimmick is you're an insect, a black and yellow striped insect. What more could really be said about the killer bees? Well, I mean, there was a dead guy named the undertaker. He did some stuff with. So the young stallions, uh, we talked a little bit about the uh, heat that Paul Roma had, but we didn't talk about Jim powers much. Got any good Jim power stories you could share with us. Jimmy was one of those guys that was an extra an enhancement talent that always had a great attitude and was a great example of great attitude. will get you a lot more than maybe sometimes your talent deserves. But, uh, Jimmy powers was always there. He would make his way to the towns, always have his gear. And he was in the right place at the right time. Had a great look, worked his ass off, but you know, unfortunately there are not a lot of great Jim power stories because what you saw is what you got. There wasn't a whole lot of personality there. Jim loved to, to train, you know, eat right and smile. And he did all that. Well, what about Boris Zukov? What can you tell us about him? Big Jim Nelson. Boris Zukov was originally in the Carolinas, which is, uh, I believe he's a South Carolina boy. And he got his first big break working with Sergeant Slaughter in the Carolinas as Private Jim Nelson. And Slaughter had him kind of being a subservient private when Sarge was a top heel there. But he, when we were talking about, you know, doing this uh, Boris Zukov thing, they're like, you know, Nelson's got this huge head and bald. He would look kind of like a Russian. And that's how Boris Zukov got born. But uh, Zukov and Nikolai were a great tag team. That you, <laughs> A perfect example of a gimmick that it was just nostalgia, man. It was still the Russians. We hate the Russians. We hate the Japanese because of, of World War II. And they were able to stick them in there. And if they sang the national anthem, then they got heat. But uh, Jim was just a good old country boy. Well, what about, um, and I know that we talked about him a little bit here today. Ken Patera. Ken Patera, legend in the business. You didn't spend a lot of time with him there. Can you give us any more insight about Ken Patera? Any funny stories or interesting stuff you may be able to share? I don't know if I should share this one, but I'll go ahead and do it anyway. Ken, look, I, I always liked Ken Patera. I thought that, that Ken was uh, a pretty cool guy. But Ken Patera was my, my first hookup for GHB in that he could get it directly from Germany. And it was legal. It was all legal then, folks. But Ken had a gym in Minnesota. And he was able to get this GHB directly from Germany. And I said, Hey, can you send me a case of it? He thought I was selling it. 
And I said, no, man, this is all for me. And to this day, Patera is amazed at the amount of GHB that I used to get from him. But Ken was, Ken was the original, uh, world's strongest man and had, you know, those combined lifts kind of like Mark Henry and an absolutely unbelievable, strong human being. But Reed is another guy that, uh, you know, we're not going to talk about a whole lot. I'm sure we'll touch on a little bit when we do WrestleMania four and long form. Um, but outside of that, I don't know when he'll come up again. What can you tell us about Butch Reed? Butch Reed, uh, is a cowboy now, or was a cowboy last time I checked, uh, steer wrestler and, and bronc rider, just a legit badass former pro football player. The Butch Reed was a big star all everywhere. He was a big star in Florida. He was a big star mid South for Bill Watts working with JYD. And one of my favorite Butch Reed stories was he was traveling with, uh, Ernie Ladd and they wrecked, they wrecked their car, big old white Lincoln town car and Butch and Ernie Ladd and Chavo and Hector Guerrero had to squeeze into a Porsche 911 to make it to the town. And Butch was so irritated, just cussing and absolutely going nuts. And I took him home that night back to Houston and the whole way he was cussing up a storm and in the back seat kicking and yelling screaming at chavo and hector and ernie lad looks at me and goes it's the drugs and the ripple talking to you pritchard it's the drugs and the ripple pad to no attention to bruce reed but butch was man butch was a great guy the other thing i always wanted to do with uh with butch was when jyd left jyd left in the middle of his big angle with butch reed in mid-south and butch used to come out to uh, taking it to the streets and JYD used to always come out to another one bites the dust. So we had a big show or a show in Beaumont, no such thing as a big show in Beaumont, but we had a show with them on top and we were trying to figure out what to do. And I said, why don't we just send Butch to the read hit JYD's music and we all leave Work for JYD. Butch didn't like that idea very much. And no, we didn't do it. We sent buddy Landell out there, get wow. his ass kicked. My goodness. Uh, Jimmy Valiant, somebody you mentioned earlier that you were kind of shocked with and get a lot of questions about obviously a holdover from, uh, a bygone era here. When, when, when could we talk about him again? So let's do it now. What what can you tell us about Jimmy V? Well, Johnny Valiant, Johnny Valiant was, was the manager of, of Greg and, uh, Dino and Johnny Valiant was actually, uh, Vince's roommate at military school. He always, you know, he was a football player, did some different things, but he came, I think he came from Maryland somewhere up in that area and he broke into the wrestling business. They put the Valiant gimmick on him and he teamed with uh, boogie woogie man, Jimmy Valiant, and they were working brothers along with guy, I think guy Clark or something like that out of Indiana, who later on was Jerry Valiant, but Johnny was uh, a decent hand, great talker. And Vince always kept him around kind of out of loyalty and they were just longtime friends. So Johnny always had a place as long as Vince was in charge there. Yeah. My apologies for saying Jimmy, I guess I've been watching too much Jim Crockett lately. I should mention, I found it interesting that, uh, Johnny allegedly appeared on a few episodes of the Sopranos. Did you know that? Yes, he did. He, you know, he's doing acting. Johnny was also in that famous scene in the movie, the wrestler that always plays back in my head whenever I go to a convention where Johnny was the guy that was asleep when they were doing the autograph signing in the American Legion hall. 
but Johnny's a good guy. He tried his hand being a comedian, but he's one of those, you know, New Jersey, New York, Yankee kind of guys. But I think he's originally from Maryland and he invents first met military school. It's a small world. Paul Orndorff wasn't with the company too terribly long after this. I don't know when we'll talk about him again. Um, one of the greats in the business certainly deserves a lot more recognition than he gets. Any interesting road stories or ribs or anything you can share with us about Paul Orndorff? Paul was somebody, if you ribbed Paul Orndorff, you were pretty much crazy. Paul was a no nonsense guy. Paul loved to hunt and fish. Um, Southern boy from Georgia. He was about as straightforward as straightforward can get. He didn't like, he didn't like taking a lot of bullshit. He didn't give a lot of bullshit. And Paul, especially at this time in his career, you know, where we are here in 1987, Paul knew, unfortunately, that his career was winding down because his whole career had been about his physique. And he was so self-conscious about that, that right arm not being what it once was. And he, he just felt like, you know, his best days were behind him and he knew it. So, but he was a straight up tough son of a gun that didn't take shit from anybody. But he loved to go hunt and fish and, and be his own man. I was fascinated when doing research for this show to learn that uh, Oliver Humperdinck was not even 40 years old when this aired. I always thought Oliver Humperdinck was 60 forever. Um, I don't know when we'll talk about him again. What can you tell us about Sir Oliver Humperdinck? I first met Hump in like 1984, 85, something like that, when he came through the Mid-South and he was managing uh, Lord Humongous. And Humperdinck was a manager then. He also was with Jake the Snake. They were a great heel tag team. But an extremely interesting character. And Hump could smoke dope unlike anyone I'd ever met in my life. Oliver Humperdinck was the first person to, to uh, show me how to take a shotgun and the first person that I ever knew that had a glass pipe. So um, tip the hat to Sir Oliver Humperdinck, but he was a top guy everywhere that he went. Uh, his manager, great talker, and they, they called him Rooster because of the, the red hair and the look and everything. But uh, he was a good guy, smart guy too. So as a reminder, we're going to be doing this every Thanksgiving. Tell your friends right now to check out this episode and our sister show, uh, whwmonday.com to hear Starcade 87 and tune in next Thanksgiving. And we're going to be back here with another Starcade and another Survivor Series. And uh, on December 1st, we're covering all things Jake the Snake Roberts. And uh, don't forget to vote in our poll. The poll is up right now for December 8th. Let's remind you of uh, what's on that poll again. It's the Rockers with Marty Jannetty, the Steiner Brothers with Scott Steiner, the Hart Foundation with Jim Neidhart, and the Legion of Doom. And we're going to include Draws and Heidenreich in that. So go vote right now. It's facebook.com forward slash something to wrestle. And be sure to check out the brand new video, the commercial for the show you just listened to. It is outstanding. Sean Mooney hit a home run with it. And we'd love to have your feedback. So participate in the poll. Leave us a comment. Ask about Jake. And be sure to hit that subscribe button. He is at Bruce Pritchard. I am at Hey, Hey, it's Conrad. And Bruce, unless you have anything else, we are out of time. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. We'll see you next week right here on Something to Wrestle With.
Bruce Pritchard. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.